0: I've been coerced into watching tonight's
1: movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend
0: in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello, and welcome to Primitive Culture, a of M podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined again by Lee Hutchison. Hi, Lee. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me back. That's all right. We had so much fun last time around. I thought we'd better uh, get you back to uh, sub for Tony again while he's on his extended uh, break. Probably not on Rice at the moment. I don't know what the quarantine restrictions are there, but (laughs) taking a bit of time off from Star Trek anyway. Um, So we're just going to pick up really where we left off last time. We got pretty much to the end of season two of DS9 last time. So I thought we'd pick up this time with season three and The Search, which is... Interestingly, in the weird, uh, timey-wimey, temporal chaos of primitive culture is an episode that you and I have recorded uh, a discussion of, but I have not yet put out. So, <laughs> listeners, that's something to look forward to. Um, but the search is an interesting one because I was, in some ways, it seems to me it's very uh, straightforward. It's kind of one of those, you know, Burman pillar type uh titles, the this, the that, the kind of, you know, there's nothing very kind of poetic or, or strange or uh, interesting about it. But it just struck me thinking about it and thinking about our discussion. There is something maybe a little bit more clever about it, because if you think about it, the search part one is a search for the founders. What's the search part two about? There's no searching by that point, except maybe there's a search for the truth or a search for kind of uh understanding. Or It's, it's, it's one of those things where the meaning of it possibly shifts slightly As you go on between the two parts. And DS9 obviously is going to kind of pioneer these two-parters where they don't just have a part one and a part two, but they have some kind of interesting uh, sort of dialogue between the two parts. I don't know, maybe this is stretching it a bit, but uh, it just struck me that, you know, what is it they're searching for? Well, they're kind of searching for different things in the two parts of this one.
1: Well, if it's any consolation, I'm about to stretch that uh, credibility even kind of further. I kind of think about the search of, this is like the point where Next Generation has gone off the air, Voyager is a few months away Generations is soon to follow Deep Space Nine is alone and you know the first two seasons it certainly has its fans but when people talk or get enthusiastic about Deep Space Nine those seasons aren't the ones that people kind of tend to go to there's certain episodes it's always like you know when Worf came along or when the Dominion came along and I think with the search it's that perhaps idea of searching to find what the you know what will make this show so special we have the introduction of the Defiant we have a first real kind of meaningful encounter you know after sort of the Hadar with the, the Dominion as a whole not just sort of the the Hadar. so we'll meet the, the founders, Oda will find his people, you know things will essentially spin off in wild directions over the remaining four years so you know Deep Space Nine is almost finding itself what is going to set this show apart now that the next generation isn't there to perhaps rely on for for bringing in audience members before when it kind of airs maybe the day or hour before so you know I, I think think. think it's a kind of bigger meaning
0: perhaps with the the title that's an interesting way of looking at it it's also i suppose in a way it is a kind of soft reboot of the show isn't it i mean the fact they brought in the defiant makes a huge difference you know gives them that kind of firepower but also gives them more of that ability to explore it's almost a kind of statement of yes we are the show that's based in one place you know Uh, we're kind of not going anywhere. There's this, and a lot of people complained about this at the time. People were like, how can you have Star Trek without a starship that's going off exploring? In a way, the Defiant opens that up and calling it the search, it sort of signals we can do the boldly going. We can do the exploring. We can do the kind of going out there. It doesn't all have to be about this one location, uh, in a way. I mean, so I guess again, it's sort of almost a statement of intent saying, going forward, we can kind of, you know, we're putting the feelers out. We're kind of, we're, we're, we're going out there. We're, we're doing some of that traditional Star Trek stuff in a way that when this series was first conceived, we sort of weren't allowed to do because it was baked into the premise that, that, that all of that was sort of off limits. And by this point, They're sort of allowed to do that. And there was this kind of anxiety because originally the Defiant was going to be called the Valiant, wasn't it? And they said they couldn't do that because they had a, you know, they had Voyager and they didn't want Voyager and the Valiant and all these kind of V's going around. But I think there was this sort of sense of like, um, they did, they, they wanted to keep Deep Space Nine different enough from the new show. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily allowed to go back to the, kind of exploring ethos of Star Trek, even though they've got the whole Gamma Quadrant to explore. And so obviously they sort of found a different way of doing it. I mean, really beyond this point, we don't see much of the Gamma Quadrant. We never see that much of the Gamma Quadrant in Deep Space Nine, uh, strangely. When you'd think actually being by the wormhole, it's the perfect jumping off point for a show that would be about exploration. This is one of those episodes where they go there, they've got a mission to do, and they are kind of, you know, looking for something as yet undiscovered.
1: Yeah, it is definitely one of those ones. I think this kind of, you know, there there'll be more sort of exploring of the the gamma quadrant to go, but it it does move away from being that sort of exploring show um you know discovering new life forms and civilizations in the gamma quadrant to essentially a war or you know for a long period a cold war with the Gamma Quadrant and sort of that exploration does happen kind of um, periodically over the remaining four seasons but in a way they find the conflict that will drive this show for for the remaining four years in sort of the Dominion and they'll pull further and further back from sort of investigating the, the Gamma Quadrant and perhaps finding comfort with you know that first season or two you know the criticism was oh it's just a, a show that doesn't go anywhere well they, they explored quite a bit of the Gamma Quadrant and then they sort of found that comfort of, well, the conflict can come to us, you know, having perhaps more confidence to have issues on the space station amongst the crew. And, you know, I think they found that that missing spice to, to make the show one that I think a lot of fans will agree is their, their favourite Star Trek and perhaps the pinnacle of the franchise in
0: terms of writing and um, imagination. Well, next up after the search, we have The House of Quark. Now, I love this title. I love this episode as well, but I just think it's brilliant because it's sort of, it's such a simple title, but it carries this kind of paradox within it because, you know, The House of Quark sounds so grand. Obviously, we know it's a Klingon thing, but we know Quark is a Ferengi. So it's kind of the the paradox of the episode is right there. Uh, In the title, I think it's, you know, it's a kind of tease for something that shouldn't be possible almost. And yet, this is what we're going to get. Yeah, I think it's quite a playful title. It's one that certainly kind of makes
1: you smile. I mean, you kind of look at some of the titles, especially for Deep Space Nine they're not kind of big standout ones sort of in the run-up to this. You have things like Crossover, The Wire, The Maquis, Tribunal, The Hadar, The Search, The Search 2. You know, it's pretty boring kind of titles, not one that kind of um, evokes much excitement. You know, I think it's, it's been a while since obviously Blood Oath at this point, which is the last one to get get a bit of excitement kind of going in you. So, you know, The House of Quarks sort of stands out and doesn't have that perhaps um, Rick Berman kind of thing of uh, the title.
0: Then we have Equilibrium, which I guess is slightly more sort of evocative. This is one of those titles which we're going to get, particularly going forward into Voyager, I guess, these sort of vaguely scientific or kind of slightly abstract or kind of, um, I don't know quite how you would describe it, but, y- 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 you know, it's it's describing something uh, that, that is a kind of abstract concept, I suppose, that relates loosely to the episode. I mean, what is the Equilibrium exactly? in this is it about kind you know is it about sort of finding some kind of balance some kind of inner balance i don't know you know one of those titles that is slightly seems very simple but then you sort of wonder what what exactly are they getting out there you know I wonder if as we kind of go through this obviously we're sort of at the the, you know
1: the 330s kind of mark with something like this that how many of these will be become things like where it's uh, the title you know whether it's an alien or something kind of applicable to to the show or be something like I think as you say we'll see with Voyager especially I've kind of been recently sort of find myself watching Voyager again from the the start with the sort of that new Delta Flyers podcast and you know you you think of a lot of those first season titles which we'll we'll come on to in this episode are sort of quite pulled from sort of scientific textbooks and um, kind of theory. So you kind of almost get the impression of like, right, we're starting to have to really dive into title ideas, like flick through a book, you know, oh, that sounds, as you say, vaguely scientific or something that kind of, oh, you know, let's pull an idea from from the Dictionary or thesaurus this week.
0: It's a weird one with Equilibrium as well, because I think it's one of those titles that slightly undersells the drama of the episode. I mean, this is quite a creepy episode You've got the whole thing with the music that's quite sinister. You've got, you know, this is basically an episode about, uh, a murderer, you know, dark, uh, nasty secret calling it equilibrium. I suppose you could say that's another one of those ironic Deep Space Nine titles, you know, Paradise or Progress or whatever, where it sounds quite positive, but actually it's, it's very much not. Um, but it does feel, it feels like a very nothingy title. And it's strange because in some ways the episode, is quite uh whether you like it or not is is quite um it's not nothingy do you know what i mean it's got something quite nasty and sort of surprising at the heart of it uh so it's an oddly bland title i suppose for that
1: yeah you can think of sort of a more exciting story to perhaps match to something like equilibrium They, they just don't seem to sort
0: of kind of match up too well then we have second skin now this, I think this is a nice title. Certainly when you compare it, people always compare this episode to Face of the Enemy. Um Both great titles, I suppose. But Second Skin, I think is just a bit more, it's a little bit more evocative. It's a little bit more mysterious somehow. Um We talked about how Face of the Enemy sounded like it could have been a, I don't know, some kind of a, you know, thriller or something last time, I think. But um Second Skin, there's something quite, sinister about it. Also also something sort of it makes you think of like reptiles and uh, snakes and so on. And I suppose the Cardassians have always had this kind of reptilian uh, element to them. So maybe there's something there. And with the, the, the two S's as well.
1: I think there's something about, you think of Face of the Enemy, you know, it it has an interesting kind of title, but Second Skin, there's something about it where, you know, I don't know about you, but it just feels like it gets un- under, you know, the sort of skin mm. a little bit, but there's something about itchy, a bit uncomfortable about it. It doesn't feel fitting in a way, sort of. So it, it's an interesting one, especially when you think of sort of what Kira goes through in this episode and probably Nana a visitor, with sort of all those prosthetics as well. I can imagine it. it has that sort of claustrophobic, tight
0: uncomfortable feel that that's what evokes in, in me when i hear those words then we've got the abandoned now i suppose this is one of those the whatever titles but there's a whole uh set of them in ds9 where it's there's something but the the thing is and i can't think we need a, a grammarian here to, to to you know put their finger on it but we've got the abandoned the forsaken the begotten these kind of um it's not a the and then a sort of straightforward noun in a sense. It's a the and then it's a noun that's formed by someone who has had something done to them, if that makes sense. Mm. And I don't know what the word for that is, I'm afraid. Uh, Apologies. But it feels like there's a little pattern there. Um, And oddly, a lot of these episodes seem to relate to Odo one way or another. We get this sort of pattern with these uh, these episodes. Um, So I suppose you have something, but it's slightly... It's an odd way to describe it, if you know what I mean, to, to use these, again, quite, not abstract exactly, but slightly detached uh, words, rather than something more concrete or more specifically grounded within the world of the episode. I always think of the idea of being the abandoned as something that really kind of evokes
1: sort of that parental in- instinct, and it's that it's something that's been mm. thrown into the the trash. You know, when something you think of something being abandoned, it's something that almost has personal significance, or it's something that shouldn't be treated that way. You always think of like, um, you know children that have been put on to kind of doorstops. You know, I always think something like There Will Be Blood, for example, you know, um, Daniel Day-Lewis' kind of character, just like screaming, out I've abandoned my child, I've abandoned my boy. You know, it's something that people shouldn't do it's it's it also it invokes that god you can't imagine you couldn't do anything potentially worse than than abandoning you know someone that's so young and to so defenseless and it's lucky in this case that it found such a a good home it's it, it evokes that
0: sort of probably parental parental anxiety in someone next up civil defense which I suppose is kind of ironic in a way in that it's, I mean, it is a kind of defense, but this it is it's kind of an offense as far as our characters are concerned. Um, and it's, I, I suppose, sort of tapping into, you know, the idea of civil defense as, as, you know, I guess like, uh, something that you sign up for, something that you do, um, out of what kind of patriotic loyalty and responsibility and these kind of things. But in this case, uh, it's almost a sort of inversion of, of this in that this programme is is very distrustful of anyone's motives, of anyone. You, you know, it's kind of constantly assuming that everyone is uh, rebelling and turning against things and kind of revolting and so on. Um a great episode, though, um, and, and I think quite a good title. I, I quite like that title.
1: Yeah, I, I, I love this episode. It's one that I think it's grown in popularity year on year as people discover Deep Space Nine. I mean, obviously, my my mind is drawn to sort of like, and I think we'll see more of this as, as Deep Space Nine goes on, that originally when Deep Space Nine was kind of envisioned, it it was further expanding upon that sort of wagon train to the stars. It's that station out there in the wilderness that ships will pass through on their way to, you know, perhaps the Gamma Quadrant further into the Alpha Quadrant, you know, we see a lot more parallels with sort of World War Two, World War history. Mm-hmm. And this is an element perhaps of that, you know, you think of sort of the civil defence was um, kind of began in sort of the, the First World War and kind of went on to sort of into the Second World War, you know, mobilising kind of British citizens. And um, I think, you know, things like that, being able to help out sort of, you know, along the lines, I think, was the United States. I think Harry Truman activated them as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I can I can see a lot of parallels with what's to come from from Duke Space Nine as it turns from sort
0: of that wagon train to the stars to um, you know a World War II sort of show. That's an interesting way of looking at it. That it's a title that belongs in that kind of World War II era. Certainly, I don't know whether the episode does in any way particularly, but it's uh, yeah you're right. It's sort of it's a, as a phrase. It's kind of alluding to that in a way that is. I don't know. Again, maybe there's a kind of irony there. Maybe it's another one, one of these ones where something that sounds quite positive is actually being used to describe something awful. (laughs) You know, it's that kind of typical uh, DS9 episode in that sense. Um, Meridian. I don't have a huge amount to say about it's just the name of the planet as far as I know I don't think there's anything
1: It, it does have an interest in sort of um, if going off the, the sort of dictionary definition mm. I suppose it ties in sort of with the, that double meaning uh, a great circle of the surface of the earth passing through the poles so the half of such a circle included between the poles so obviously the sort of phasing elements sort of the you know passing through in a, a way sort of a, a little bit of a, a sci-fi twist on sort of, um, kind of the, the meridian as it
0: were that's true. And I suppose like the Greenwich meridian and so on we think of. But um,
1: Apparently, what yeah, is meridian in human body? Uh, it, uh, a, a Meridian is an energy highway in the human body. Meridians can be mapped through the body. They flow within the body and not on the surface. Meridians exist in corresponding pairs and each meridian has acupuncture points in the path. So perhaps there's a, an, an element which ties into sort of mythology and such like there.
0: I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. Um, Tony and I did an episode talking about uh this episode and the film brigadoon which i don't know if you're familiar with mm. a fan of, uh, <laughs> vehemently opposed to um but yeah i don't know it's it's a weird one this episode and I, I i never particularly thought about the naming of the planet which obviously the episode takes its name from but maybe you're right maybe there is something there about um I don't know, what is, what does a meridian, what is a meridian literally? I mean, what does the word mean? Is it something, is it like down the middle? Is that what it's sort of derived from? Um, I'm going to have a look. It comes from, it means midday. It's interesting. Passes through a given meridian at solar noon. I suppose you could say if a meridian represents midday in different places, It's a link between space and time in some way, and I suppose what you have in this story, as in Brigadoon, is a place that is here, you know, there and not there uh, at particular times. So maybe I don't know. Maybe there's something kind of along those lines. The idea of like sort of syncing up, lining up uh, at a certain moment. I don't know. Um, After that, we have the movie Star Trek Generations. Now I don't know. um, Obviously, we we know. Brandon and and Ron Moore had a sort of series of um, tasks they were asked to fulfil with the script for Generations. And the number one task was to combine the two generations of Star Trek, you know, the original series and the next generation. And in a way they, obviously they tick that box and the title kind of ticks that box. I was kind of curious, do you know, were there other titles? I'm sort of aware of all the alternative titles for First Contact. Were there other titles for Generations that you know of? I mean, is that, uh, or did that come out pretty early on? I couldn't, uh, come across any in my very brief research but I kind of imagine there must have been
1: not according to IMDB so uh, no um, but I always find the more, most interesting thing perhaps about this is that is the first title since the motion picture to jettison the, the Roman numerals that it's one of these ones also as well it's Star Trek Generations it's all one title it's not a Star Trek Dash you know film title like we would get perhaps with first contact you know it's it's very similar in the respect of the star trek into darkness where it all flows into to one title yeah i never realized that you mean there's no colon no there's no colon sort of so it's star trek generation oh. so that it kind of all kind of encompasses to, together so-
0: not only have I offended the grammar nerds, but the typography nerds are going to be disappointed in me as well. That, that is a very interesting. I didn't realize that. I thought that was something that JJ Abrams had brought in, but yeah. Although weirdly, when I look it up, Wikipedia has it with no colon. IMDb has stuck a sneaky colon in there. Uh, but maybe that, that didn't deserve to be there. That is very interesting. And then with first contact, they decided to bring the colon back.
1: Yeah, I think it's one of those things, I think you can also argue Star Trek Nemesis is sort of, again, another sort of flowing title, perhaps I think there might be some disagreement with that one, but again,
0: that could be perhaps a, a flowing title. Interesting, but it does slightly change the meaning of it if it's Star Trek Generations or Star Trek Generations, do you know what I mean? If it's, yeah. uh, I can see that is a, oh no, this is one of those things I feel like, you know, this has been under my nose. For, for decades. And Star Trek Nemesis as well doesn't have a colon. Uh, not as far Blimey as I my mindly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: there'll, be, there'll be someone no doubt in the Babel conference that will pull up some wow. sort of proof or something like that. But no, Star Trek Nemesis Crazy. also falls under sort of the, the same one.
0: So why did First Contact and Insurrection I think it it all just depends on the. Does Jonathan Frakes insist on the colon? Is that like in his contract? I think it all depends (laughs) on the title
1: ultimately, doesn't it? Sort of some will blend really well together, some perhaps will not. Um, I, I think that's probably just the. The way it is, I say, similar to sort of Star Trek Into Darkness, Star Trek Beyond. You can start, they they flow really well together as a sort of three word or four word title. So yeah, I, I think you know some of them are, an, you know, an insurrection is an act. Star Trek Generations is a, a sort of statement, I guess.
0: Fascinating. Okay, uh, back to DS Nine. We have Defiant. Uh, obviously, it's an episode about the Defiant, but I think there's. There must be a pun here. You know, we're talking about Thomas Riker. Thomas Riker has become effectively a terrorist. Uh, if anyone's defiant, I suppose he is. Uh, it's, I don't know, again, a sort of slightly sly title there. Deceptively simple, but, you know, clearly alluding to something else. Yeah, that that's the nice one of like, I think probably most people nine times out of ten would think it's just about
1: the shit. But, you know, it is actually about Thomas Riker. It's got that nice little dual meaning.
0: Fascination that's an odd title, I think. This is an episode a lot of people hate. I actually quite like it. But um is it about fascination? That's not how I would describe it. It's an odd word. I don't really know why they've used that word to describe it. This is the one where they all kind of fall in love with the wrong person and do a kind of um Midsummer Night's Dream on Deep Space Nine. Um Fascination doesn't quite cover it for me.
1: No, it, it seems like a pretty bland description. It's not, as I say, it doesn't sort of evoke the feelings that we get from, from the episode or the plot. It, it feels like the wrong word to, to pick to describe
0: it. And it's not funny either. I mean, this is a you know pretty broadly comic episode, but they've given it a title that sounds quite serious almost. Yeah, it's, it's an odd one. After that, one of my favorites, probably one of my favorite Deep Space Nine episodes, uh, two parters, but also I-, I think a great title, Past Tense, Part One and Two. Um, I think this is a title that works kind of on several levels. I mean, obviously, uh, I guess a- again, it's here we have a grammar pun, uh, you know, the past tense, but this is about the fact that it's the past, uh, and it's pretty tense. I mean, it's pretty awful down there. Uh, there is a lot of tension. There is, you know, literally a riot, which is caused by people whose, like, tension has kind of spilled over. But I think there's also a kind of irony there of sort of the, the question that Deep Space Nine kind of asks in this episode is, is this really behind us? Are we safely free of this? Do you know what I mean? Is is the past past to this extent? And we have that conversation where Bashir says – um you know basically if push comes to shove could we end up back here do you know what i mean there's this kind of element of not wanting to be too complacent about the fact that yeah the past was awful but the future is is brilliant and wonderful and i don't know so i just wonder and obviously seeing where certain strands of the story in deep space nine kind of go going forward um that brings an interesting element to it and of course in the real world for us you know past tense was previously sort of dystopian sci-fi now feels increasingly relatable uh almost kind of oracular (laughs) kind of prediction do you know what i mean i mean the closer we get to that world the more it feels like some of the kind of situations we're seeing there feel more real, not less you know it doesn't it doesn't feel like I mean Star Trek may have got past all this, it certainly doesn't feel like we've got past all this I think it's also one of these ones that when you sort of think
1: about this episode, you think. I wouldn't be surprised if like this was an episode title that gets, you would get used on, on Voyager eventually. It is sort of a a nice kind of clever title for, for a a time travel, trying, a time travel episode. So yeah, I'm not surprised it's been used in sort of this way. Um, And I wouldn't have been, if it wasn't used here, it would have been a hundred percent used eventually. It's got that, while it's got so many significant meanings, it's also somewhat nicely generic
0: for that kind of story. Funny you should mention Voyager, because next up we have uh, Voyager's pilot episode, Caretaker. Now, again, I think this is an interesting choice. Just as we had with Emissary, there was a choice to focus on an individual. And not just an individual, but an, I mean, there's a kind of weird parallelism between the two in that they're both named after someone, but it's not their kind of... I mean, I don't know if the Caretaker has a real name, but it's like a, it's a, a role that they're fulfilling. The Emissary, the Caretaker. Um, they sort of created deliberately or not a weird sort of bridge between those two episodes and again as much as i was saying when we were talking about emissary obviously the emissary stuff is important in emissary but there's so much else that's kind of going on kind of geopolitical stuff going on personal drama going on all this stuff it's kind of interesting to focus on this religious uh sort of interpretation of events with Caretaker, is the Caretaker the most interesting thing about this story or about Voyager? Because obviously the Caretaker is the reason they get stuck there. But then the entire series is going to be about being in the Delta Quadrant, being lost in space, being kind of, do you know what I mean? This whole, if you think about what is Voyager about, actually beyond that episode, we kind of forget that it, why they got there. We forget about the caretaker. The caretaker is fairly irrelevant for most of Voyager. We have this one episode, you know, a season or so later where we meet the counterpart, the other caretaker. And again, it sort of doesn't really lead anywhere. Um, I don't know. It seems one of those things that again sort of slightly undersells the grandiosity of this, you know, endeavor taking a Starfleet ship and hurling it to the far side of the the galaxy. Um, But we're just going to call it Caretaker. And uh, what comes to mind is that silly old man playing the banjo. I
1: also kind of think about it on sort of a a behind the scenes kind of element as well I mean you have obviously had the death of Gene Roddenberry a couple years before he's passed away you know there really was sort of the changing of the guard you had something like Deep Space Nine which was sort of the first series created without kind of Roddenberry's involvement by um, Biller and um, Berman and Piller and then you have sort of the same with kind of Caretaker so again another of show created that first sort of um, series co-created by a, a female um, writer as well and then you think of like where sort Trek is at the time, you have Deep Space Nine up and running, the first kind of spin-off series post Roddenberry you have this coming along, the first kind of female captain, you have Generations on the Horizon, this is like peak Rick Berman kind of era, you know Star Trek's on the front cover of like Time Magazine, you know, even though we're enjoying so many different series just now that's what people consider the peak of Star Trek was the nineties, you know, films, TV, you know, books, multimedia, everything like that. You know, it almost probably signals the guard with something like this, that it's truly another group of people that are now in full control of, of this franchise and empire really. And it's, you know, officially sort of in control of, you know, that original series guard is, is all long gone by, by this point. So, you know, I I almost kind of have a, a feeling that the caretaker could be, you know, Pillar, obviously he wouldn't survive a full kind of first season of voyage before returning. Uh, Jerry Taylor, you know, playing such a significant role. And Rick Berman sort of carrying on sort of the success of the franchise. So I think it could also kind of indicate something going on behind the scenes in a
0: perhaps a significant way. That is a very interesting way of looking at it. I suppose the distinction between a creator and a caretaker. Because again, I think the fact that the caretaker is referred to as a caretaker. I mean, obviously it's got the word care in there. So maybe you think of like a caregiver, but a caretaker is like a guy who, you know, mends the fence. And, uh, do you, do you know what I mean? It's not yeah. particularly glamorous or exciting. No offense to any caretakers out there, but it's not like a, a grand, uh, galactic role. Do you know what I mean? It no. sounds very local and very kind of small and very kind of, um, it's downplaying. I mean, if Rick Berman calls himself a caretaker, You know, if Gene Roddenberry was the creator and Rick Berman is just the caretaker, it's a way of sort of saying, like, not drawing attention to yourself. Do you know what I mean? Kind of Mm -hmm. saying, I'm just keeping this ticking over. I'm just, you know, making sure that the wheels don't fall off. Uh, I'm not kind of doing my own creative stamp on it.
1: I get the impression that he's is that kind of role, yeah. Deep Space Nine, he famously was very hands-off. I mean, they could really bloody do whatever the hell they want. He obviously had that bit more involvement with uh, Voyager. You think of some of the stories sometimes where they, I think he had a statue of um, Gene Roddenberry in his office and would sometimes wrap, you know, like a, i don't know a band or something round his eyes or ears when someone would talk <laughs> about something that was just like too out of this sort of star trek concept i think it was like iris Stephen bear or you know brandon braga have kind of spoken about this sort of you know rick berman berman act and so on and you know you, you get the impression that he isn't someone that has like a huge amount of hands-on involvement perhaps at times with um, voyager you know he, he you know perhaps suggests the odd story idea here there he's sort of more that kind of producer element i suppose just keeping the lights on allowing you know Know, pillar to you know get going with sort of voyager you know iris steven bear taking a further kind of lead on deep Space nine he is sort of that caretaker of the the franchise while the others sort of get to really play in the the kind of sand basket, um of uh, the franchise
0: well and you're right that uh berman obviously came from a production background. I mean, although he ended up writing various episodes, you know, he wrote a lot of enterprise, but initially he was a kind of executive at Paramount, right? He you know, he came from a sort of managerial background rather than a creative background compared to say, now we have Alex Kurtzman in a sort of similar role. Um, and Kurtzman gets a lot of flack and, and Berman got a lot of flack and, and still does get a lot of flack. Everyone kind of in, in that position, I think, is is bound to get a lot of flat for one reason or another, deserved or otherwise. But I suppose Kurtzman comes from a creative uh, point of view in that we've, you know, bef- before he had anything to do with Star Trek, we've been watching, you know, uh, entertainment that he's had a hand in creating. Um, and we maybe have opinions about his work and, and what we think of that. Berman was much more of a sort of, Mysterious entity, I suppose, in a way, because he doesn't ever, uh, it, it's not like he's someone who, who's out there doing the big speeches that much. He, he's kind of behind the scenes, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Even Alex, you know, Alex Kurtzman's to some degree, I suppose, is, is, is the kind of puppet master behind the scenes, but he, he was the one who came on stage and announced Patrick Stewart was coming back. You know, he's kind of willing to, uh, stick his neck out a little bit more. I don't, I don't think he would see himself as a caretaker. I mean, as much as he, you know makes quite sort of humble remarks about what he's doing and so on um i think it's a different approach and i suppose with Berman there was always that element of uh like you say kind of roddenberry on his shoulder do you know what i mean the responsibility of taking over someone else's um thing that he could never have you know he he would never have come up with star trek do you know what i mean but he could kind of shepherd it uh as as he saw fit for many years and you know i mean we could easily get uh down a massive digression into the pros and cons of berman's uh era of star trek and some of the next week's uh, (laughs) we could be here for hours um talking about some of the the you know, questionable decisions and, uh, biases and, and so on that went on there. And equally talking about the fact that, you know, for whatever its faults, that era of Star Trek produced a lot of the best, uh, stuff. But I suppose there is an interesting question there about, you know, what is the role of the person who's the kind of head honcho and how does that work? Cause even with Roddenberry, I mean, the fact is Roddenberry was there right at the beginning but even within the original series he was off half the time do you know what i mean he wasn't even the one kind of holding the reins a lot of the time and then in the movies you know he was sort of there and gone again and kind of being kept at arm's length and kind of kept away from things a bit obviously early next gen he was more involved again he kind of um but you you know so he's a creator who was kind of not always it's he wasn't uh, say, J. Michael Straczynski writing every episode pretty much of Babylon 5 and like completely overseeing the whole project. Um, he was a much more of a sort of, I don't know, I was going to say like a kind of wayward father kind of wandering off and <laughs> doing other things and then coming back and kind of, um, you know, for various reasons, sort of in and out of that central position. Whereas Berman, I suppose, held a, a fairly detached position, but consistently for a very long period of time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be
0: interesting to sort of chart his, his involvement along the franchise in, in these episode titles. Well, next up, we've got the episode parallax. Now, this is one of these kind of scientific terms that I feel, uh, someone in the Voyager writers room obviously had like a, a scientific dictionary there. Well, maybe they had Andre Bormanis, who ended up, who was a science advisor and then went on to write various episodes. Maybe he was like chucking out these kind of, uh, science titles parallax from the ancient Greek. Parallaxis, meaning alternation, is a displacement or difference in the apparent position of an object viewed along two different lines of sight and is measured by the angle or semi-angle of inclination between those two lines, uh, according to Wikipedia. Um, So I suppose, you know, we might say Voyager compared to DS9 leans much more into the kind of technobabble. Uh, It sort of brings back the next-gen level of technobabble and, and really runs with it. And Voyager episode titles as well. They sort of really want to sell... I suppose partly they're trying to sell this is a show with a captain who is a scientist and we've heard Kate Mulgrew talk about how what a challenge it was for her but also how important she felt it was to sort of try to at least get to grips with some kind of rudimentary science you know she was reading Stephen Hawking she was kind of trying to sort of as someone who didn't know much about science at all uh, at least learn enough that she felt like she could kind of do the Technobabble as if she believed in it. Do you know what I mean? As if it meant something to her. Um, and Voyager certainly has a tendency to kind of almost babble its titles. Uh, I mean, not not that this is Technobabble precisely. I mean, it is, you, you know, obviously, uh, this is a word that means something, but probably for the majority of uh, viewers, it's at least as obscure as, you know, some of those Latin quotations that we don't even know how to pronounce. It's no surprise as well that this episode is kind of written
1: by Bran and Bragg. I always like to look at who, who was the, uh, the writer in charge of this, you know, his first entry, this very kind of scientific kind of episode. You know, I do somewhat disagree. I think there becomes an element at the end. I always think of the, the great scene. As you say, it's sort of setting apart that Jamie's a scientist. We've had the action adventurer. We've had the archaeologist. We've had the family man. And now we've got the scientist in, in charge. And, you know, that scene at the end where sort of like Taurus and We are just like, out techno babbling each other with excitement. There's like Tom Paris. He is every one of us that is watching at home going, sorry, I don't understand this. That's okay, Mr. Paris. You don't need to. And you almost get that, you know, freedom to go, okay, I may not understand the parallax, um, me, uh, philosophy or the science, but I trust that these people do. And I suppose that's part of being a Star Trek fan is accepting that
0: uh, disconnect. That they understand it, even if we don't. That's true. This is the warp particles episode, isn't it? The famous uh, warp particles. You're right. There's that kind of moment. This this is the one that's really selling Janeway as a scientist as well as a captain. So maybe it's appropriate that it has that name. It reminds me a little bit, actually, we were talking last time about Timescape, another Braga episode, which, you know, when we looked it up, uh, had an explanation that... You and I were slightly baffled by on from a scientific basis. So, yeah, you're right. Maybe Bran and Braga was kind of going through a phase of, uh, you know, getting out the scientific dictionary and uh, <laughs> trying to get to grips with some of these things. Um, after that, we have time and again. I, it's interesting when you're saying about like past tense could be quite a generic time travel episode. I suppose all that, you know, we sort of talked about like the Q episodes, these kind of Q puns, there's almost that element with time travel episodes i mean we've had past tense we're going to have future tense we're going to come up to future's end in a bit you you know there there is often a kind of element of paradox there is often a kind of playfulness around them and there is a danger i suppose that a lot of those episodes become like the q episodes almost indistinguishable because it's sort of the same kind of jokes every time and they don't ever give you the the thing to latch onto that is going to actually uh it is anyway specific to the episode. But again, I guess this is a kind of playful, um, you know, one of these sort of playful ones it's another sort of episode as well that sort of
1: deals with temporal mechanics as well sort of a again a very kind of scientific heavy episode that places sort of jamie right at the the center of it you know we, we didn't have many kind of you know it, we didn't get that kind of run of episodes almost like the cisco at the beginning of, of deep space nine so it seems to be that they are placing sort of this as being a, a very science heavy kind of show um at the, the start you know these these are scientists exploring the the new frontier whereas we're sort of seeing at the time deep space nine are are becoming sort of the action adventurers, uh, perhaps.
0: Well, moving over to Deep Space Nine, next episode after that is life support. I think we might have talked about this before when we were talking about invasive procedures. I was saying there was an element of the kind of, uh, particularly with life support, I think it's very interesting. They chose to give such a kind of mundane... Well, not mundane, but such kind of real world title to that episode, which in some ways is quite fantastical and far fetched, uh, you know, with this sort of Frankensteinish stuff going on. But they call it life support, which grounds it very much in the everyday reality of, you know, someone whose life is coming to an end. There's a machine keeping them alive. Do you, t- you know, do you turn off the machine? That kind of thing. Uh, Gra- you know, grounds the science fiction in our kind of contemporary reality.
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one as well. And I mean, you always think of sort of whenever you hear about things happening on board the, the Voyager or Enterprise or whatever. So it was like the life support has been been disabled as well. You sort of always think of these ships as sort of having to rely on the life support machines that perhaps we require. I mean, you hear about people having to obviously use them sort of with COVID and breathing at the moment. So, mm. uh, you know, while obviously the life support applies here, it's also kind of something that we always think of with, well, this is what keeps the ships, uh, not
0: just the people as well, but keeps them alive and keeps it running. That's a good point. I never really thought about that because I suppose I... Th- I th- think of this title as attached to this episode so i frame it in that way but you're right if you if all you knew was there was a new episode of ds9 coming on that was called life support you would assume life support on the station was going to fail and everyone was going to be suffocating or you know i don't know the gravity would go or do you know what i mean you would assume a more sci-fi story and actually what we get is i don't know this is life support as we understand it in you know 1990 whatever not as we understand it in 23 whatever um next up heart of stone this is a truly terrible pun i think uh obviously there's kind of the element odo we might think odo has a heart of stone he doesn't he's secretly in love with kira kira alias the female changeling is literally being turned into a stone uh (laughs) and, and also the you know the female changeling does have a heart of stone she's pretty cruel and calculating i don't know i find this uh uh it's a slightly odd episode and it's uh um I don't know, I suppose it's an oddly kind of playful title. It sounds, it's very serious. It sounds quite serious, but at the same time, it's, it's sort of uh, a kind of a play on words there. I always think of it perhaps more as about Odo. I mean,
1: this is a character that we've sort of continued, that has had such a kind of development over those um, kind of episodes that this was someone that worked under the Cardassians, you know, very cold, very focused on justice, law and order. And this is the episode that perhaps melts his heart of stone when it kind of comes to sharing his his true feelings for, for Kira. So that's the way I, I've always interpreted the episode personally.
0: No, I think that's fair enough. I just think when you have someone who's basically been consumed by a rock uh, and you call it heart of stone, you're kind of like, I don't know, It's it's you kind of can't escape that unfortunate double meaning there somehow. Um, next up with Voyager, uh, Phage, I think it's pretty straightforward the cloud cloud is the kind of ultimate uh pillar berman you know whatever you call it that sort of title in that it's and a sort of you know very kind of early voyager it's just a you know a description of something and it's a it's a science phenomenon um destiny deep space nine i suppose quite interesting then again it's sort of um picking up on the religious uh element and obviously that's very much what this episode is about but i suppose again with the title they go for the kind of non-rational uh explanation or the non-rational side of it that's that's how they choose to frame the episode
1: yeah a, a very sort of generic kind of title really it, it's it's one that sort of again it, there's certain episodes where you know you hear the title you're immediately drawn to what this episode if someone went to me destiny i would know it was deep space nine but i would struggle to perhaps place it in a season or even associate with a certain episode it's it just feels like one of these generic words that just gets attached. Of like, we'll just go with that. There doesn't feel like too much thought or imagination has gone into this when It could be a title that gets applied to so many episodes
0: of the the franchise over about you know nearly eight hundred now by the end of the year. And it sounds quite big as well. You think Destiny is going to be a sort of big, meaningful uh, plot point? Yeah, you can imagine being a finale. You know, yeah. exactly. You know, whereas actually, this is just quite a you know, a, a, a small episodic story really, uh, in its own right, but it is, uh, but it's about prophecy and it's, they could have called it prophecy, I suppose. That might be, um, in a way rather than destiny makes it sound very grand. Uh, next up though, we have profit motive. So we have, um, you know, we do again, a kind of religious element, but again, this pun that we talked about last time based on this kind of, uh, homonym of profit and profit uh you know these two two words that're absolutely central to uh what distinguishes deep space nine from next generation uh, and which are almost identical and sound completely identical so you can have these episodes that kind of uh toy with that
1: how many episodes of there was overall in the franchise that had like profit? so you know we've got something like this Profit and Lace oh I'm, I think there's been there's certainly quite a few kind of along the the run as well so it, it does seem to be that go-to um, profit motive um, so yeah we've got quite a few episodes that sort of that go-to generic right you know it, I suppose back in the day when spoilers were harder and harder to perhaps find you know if someone said right here's the episode titles for the next five ten episodes of of dc's 90 if you saw profit you think "Ah, that's the that's season four's ferengi episode or oh, that's season six ferengi's episode it's it becomes that bit of a a calling card and, and thread
0: through the series that's an interesting point and i don't know i can't remember going back. I mean, usually you would get, say, in the TV listings, you'd get the title and then you'd get a one-line description, I suppose. These days, we get the titles usually. I mean, I, I don't know who is in charge of this or, or why it's so haphazard, but typically we get like four of them at a time, don't we? Uh So say we knew the first four episodes of the Lower Decks, we knew the titles. Now I think we're just getting them maybe a week at a time, you know what next week's is. But often you... Certainly when they released like four titles, and I think we had the same with Picard, we got like four or five of them to begin with. Um, And that's all you know, because there's no log line, there's no, uh you know, specific episodic trailer or anything. And that's when the kind of speculation kicks into gear. Uh, You know, we talked before about the short trek called Q&A and how that sent people into a kind of frenzy. Um So there is that kind of element, I suppose, of a title being not just the perfect thing that sort of tags or encapsulates or whatever the, this uh kind of work of art going forward, but that sort of teases it if that's going to be the very first thing that you know about it. Um And you're right, I suppose, when you have something like that, you, you know, with this kind of profit, profit joke, you can kind of bet that there's going to be it's, it's, I suppose it's kind of obvious there's going to be an interaction between the Ferengi and the Bajorans and the religion in some way. And that, you know, sure enough is what you get. Um, and then again, you know, that same, uh, kind of joke is picked up in Voyager because you have the episode False Prophets, uh, you know, with an F, um, kind of doing the same thing in reverse. Um, and going back to Voyager, we have Eye of the Needle. Uh, nice image, I think, for this episode. Um, can't help thinking really of the biblical uh, phrase, you know, about how hard it is to getting a camel through the eye of a needle, uh, being, you know, how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven and so on. I don't know that that's necessarily what they're going for. I suppose they're just going for the image of of threading something through this very tiny um, space. But it's a very, I think it's quite an evocative title. I think it's a great episode anyway, but I think it's a very evocative title that doesn't go in that sort of typical Voyager way for... It's not called micro wormhole or, you know, something scientific. It goes for something that feels quite, um, I don't know, almost like a, it does feel almost like a sort of parable or like a kind of uh, a fable or, you you know, something like that. A kind of, I mean, even just talking about a needle, uh, you know, there's no need for needles in Star Trek. This is a kind of uh, an uh, old worldy sort of concept somehow that they're using to describe, this very futuristic sci-fi concept. And the episode itself, I suppose, takes quite a sort of humanising approach to it in that we see it's all about Janeway relating on a sort of human level to that Romulan commander and finding out about his children and, you know, sort of um, bringing it back to the kind of almost the sort of everyday uh, away from the kind of whiz-bang sci-fi element. Yeah, there's not much more that I could
1: probably add to that one. Again, as I say, it's something that takes that kind of turn of phrase. And again, it, it, it boils it down to perhaps one of the most basic kind of factors of, you know, it is this tiniest wormhole on the planet that it's a struggle to even get a little probe through it or a transporter beam. So yeah, it's, it's sort of an interesting kind of play. But yeah, it's, it's, it's good. I think it's an, a good title, a good one for, for describing sort of that, a micro wormhole like that.
0: Next Voyager episode we have up here is Ex Post Facto. This is one of those Latin titles that you mentioned. Uh, you had a whole list of them, I think, in the last episode. And Ex Post Facto, weirdly, I don't think, as I understand it, and again, you know, maybe the lawyers are going to be up in arms on the Babel Conference, but is a legal phrase that I don't think really relates to the plot of this episode, as I understand it. An Ex Post Facto law is a law that works retroactively so it makes illegal something that wasn't illegal at the point that someone did it, for example, so that you can, so that you're changing the law not only now, but in the past. And it's a controversial legal move because it obviously has implications that, you know, you could be doing something that's perfectly legal at the time you're doing it and then find out later on that, that suddenly it's, you, you know, that you couldn't possibly have known that what you were doing is illegal, I suppose that's not really what the episode is about, except I suppose very loosely that there's a sense of like Tom Paris. But it's not, it's not, I was going to say, it's going to say it's sort of caught up by, I mean, he is caught up by a justice system without having done anything wrong. But at the same time, he really didn't do anything wrong. Someone else, you you know, it's a kind of um, sort of classic murder mystery kind of thing. And you know, he wasn't, he, he was the wrong guy being fingered for the crime. And we get this great business ripped straight out of Sherlock Holmes with the, you know, the, 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 the dog kind of <laughs> solving the crime and so on. Um, and Tuvok in the Sherlock Holmes role, but it's, um, it's an odd one. It's another one of these ones where I'm not totally convinced that the title fits the episode. And I think it's a hard one to remember because it's in Latin it's obscure and most people don't even know what it means. Uh, I'm kind of curious whose idea was it to slap that on this episode and, and why did they think that was the best title for it?
1: yeah again sometimes you think with something like this where it puts down like a a perhaps a Latin title as you kind of touched on this is one of of 12 though I think it's generous to say 12 when really it's 11 with um, Et in Arcadia Ego being sort of counted as uh, two titles because of the part 1 and 2 but I I get sort of the impression it's sort of one of these ones where it's like the writer perhaps trying to throw off with going let's go with the the Latin title here um, you know about the law or something kind of deep with that and it's like as you kind of touched on, well, it actually doesn't really match up quite so well. So, you know, I, I think it's a case of just trying to seem a bit smarter than, than,
0: than the reality probably is. Moving forward, emanations, I guess Voyager is again, I suppose kind of one of those sort of vaguely scientific titles, but it also, it links quite closely to what's going on in the episode. Then we have prime factors, which is basically a maths pun, I think. I mean, a prime factor is amy nelson if she's listening will be uh cursing me for not knowing the answer to this but a prime factor is is a factor that is a prime number in other words any of the prime numbers that can be multiplied to give the original number example the prime factors of 15 are three and five because three times five equals 15 and three and five are both prime numbers uh none of this is in any way relevant to the episode. This is just a pun on the fact that this is an episode about the Prime Directive. Uh, And so they, you know, this is almost like the kind of Star Trek pun generator, take the word Prime and then put in something that sounds like. uh, And I guess we've had before in Star Trek, you know, the Icarus factor, this factor. uh, It's one of those words that can almost, can be sort of tacked onto something to uh, make up an episode title. Here it's doing this kind of, You you know, we're not just having science-based puns. Now we're having maths-based puns as well. Um, and then in the next episode, we're going to have state of flux, which again is almost, um, I don't know, has a sort of scientific, I don't, I don't know if it is, if state of flux is exactly a scientific term, but it certainly has a scientific ring to it. Um, maybe because we, Uh, I'm just looking up for just as a state of anxiety about what should be done. So maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm thinking of flux capacitors and so on. But again, I don't know, I feel like in Voyager, there's this tendency to kind of lean into the scientific, the mathematical, this kind of language somehow in the titles to kind of evoke that.
1: Yeah, I think it describes sort of the way things are. So, obviously, if we follow on from sort of um prime factors where there's, you know, a little mini-mutiny, we have sort of Seska becoming a bit more of a kind of prominent kind of character, and that sort of state of flux of, you know, it's something we'll see sort of throughout the first two seasons of, of characters like Sesco, Seska um, and, um, you know, I can't remember the name of the other chap, Jonas, And um are, you know, we'll see a bit of backlash from Dirth. We'll see some of the kind of everything isn't perhaps as rosy as it should be, sort of a voyage. I mean, it's still pretty damn rosy, but you know, there's different kind of ideas about how they should kind of tackle the Kazon. We have the talk of alliances, you know, people kind of Going to the other side People sort of shipping information um, Spies within the midst You know everything is kind of Not all so settled in, in Voyager it Is still in that state of flux before it becomes Kind of that more sort of as we go on From sort of season three onwards It becomes a bit more of a sort of family Family vibe on the ship you know There's there's very little in the way of descent that we would See in sort of the, the first two seasons Of um,
0: Voyager as they sort of Travel through Kazon space Voyager I suppose is the Star Trek show that does not exist in a state of flux. I mean, there's much more flux in deep space nine than there is in Voyager insofar as Voyager is weirdly static and weirdly kind of, yeah, once, once all that issue with the marquee is resolved improbably quickly, uh, I suppose once you introduce seven of nine, there's a little bit of flux there. Um, but for the most part is a show that is weirdly kind of, you know, puts the toys back in the box every week and kind of, it has minimal character development for mo- most of the characters, to be perfectly honest, I would say. Um no, Not all of them, but you know, generally speaking, someone like Harry Kim, I think you'd be hard to uh find a huge amount of character development going on there over the course of those years. Um m- Maybe less so with, you know, characters like Tom and Blana and so on, you, you, you do get growth, but I suppose I'm thinking like Tuvok, Kote, Kim, as you know a lot going a lot of elements of that show where there's really not much flux uh, from week to week i just looked up on merriam webster online the final definition of flux is the rate of transfer of fluid particles or energy across a given surface i think maybe that's what i was thinking of when i'm thinking even if this phrase is not a scientific phrase using that word kind of evokes this sort of scientific language somehow uh for voyager so it definitely it feel it feels like a voyager episode somehow um back to ds9 we have through the looking glass now it's interesting we had when we had the mirror universe in mirror mirror obviously the mirror there is a reference to um the fairy tale and the you know the evil what is she? Stepmother, which what I I get my fairy tales mixed up, but you you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. Um the idea of sort of evil, I suppose. Here we have the mirror being reframed as uh, you know, Alice through the looking glass, Alice in Wonderland, as this kind of portal to another crazy, topsy-turvy world. Um, not so much the kind of emphasis on evil as the emphasis on everything being I suppose, different and, and and weird and so on. And it's one that's going to be massively picked up on, you know, certainly by the time we get to Discovery, where you have um, these references to Alice in Wonderland early on in the season, in season one. And then sure enough, we end up going uh, through the looking glass and, and even references to the mirror insofar as we had that um, thing with uh, Stamets and Culber, you know, brushing their teeth in the mirror and the, the weird quirk that was going on there where it's a weird thing where it's kind of they were using the alice in wonderland stuff as a way of sort of almost sort of thematically teasing the mirror universe i think in a way that doesn't actually make any sense in universe but makes sense um as a viewer or as a kind of reader if you know what i mean Um, but here absolutely you, you know we're kind of evoking alice in wonderland this time as this way of uh, capturing what this mirror universe is all about somehow, and the strangeness of crossing over into it. Yeah, and
1: I always enjoy when sort of it gets pulled from a, a literary title as well. I think there there can only be there can be many of them. If, if is there beyond sort of perhaps this one where it is a direct pull from sort of a
0: um, you know a literary title? Uh, could I be am I, I wrong there? Do you mean where it's actually the title of the book, sort of thing? Yeah, as opposed to a sort of more, a sort of vaguer allusion to something. I don't know, that's an interesting, um hmm. we'll have to look out for those and see what we come across. Obviously, by the time we get to Picard, we get Maps and Legends, which is the name of a book by Michael Shabon. Now, I don't know if that was just like a sneaky way to try and sell a few copies of his book. But um yeah, that's an interesting one. That's something to look out for, definitely. Back to DS9, we have I think a lot of people's, one of their favourite two-parters and with two great uh, memorable episode names, Improbable Cause and The is Cast. Now, I love these two because, I, I mean, I love this two-parter, but I also love the way this is the sort of, uh this is DS9 doing these kind of two-parters that are not part one and part two of the same story that are actually quite different. I mean, these two episodes are quite different sort of structurally and even in sort of tone and, and so on. Uh, but they are absolutely a two part story where part one leads into part two, part two going off in quite a different direction. Um, and they're an interesting combination of titles because I suppose Improbable Cause is very much, you know, it's very much about the mystery. It's very much, uh, you know, tapping into Odo as the detective and this kind of, uh, mystery drama. The die is cast, playing up the drama on a kind of, um, grander scale. Um, You know, this is something that can never be gone back from, in a way. You know, this is a kind of turning point. I mean, we're talking about The Search as a turning point, but this is a real turning point for the series, I suppose. Um, You know, in-universe, and again, maybe uh, kind of creatively for the show as well, there's an element of to mix metaphors here I was going to say laying the cards down on the table but you you know throwing the die throwing the you know kind of committing to it committing to something new and saying right after this uh, nothing can be quite the same going forward
1: yeah I think these are fantastic ki- Titles and I mean as you Say they're they're very different episodes As well whereas kind of Voyager With its two partners very much felt like Very similar in tone it kind of They followed each other kind of through whereas Deep Space Nine they would love to go for kind of the wildly Different episodes one is always About kind of setting up the other one to go in a wild Direction and you think of something like The improbable cause which is about Odo investigating a shot bombing And it like the improbable cause That he comes to is that you blew up your own shop Garrick and that he finds that so hard to kind of believe and then sort of you know the fact that potentially Romulans are involved in something like this that it's something that has ex- exploded you know beyond what he could have imagined and obviously the die the is cast I think obviously comes from um, Richard the third I've set my life upon a cast and I will stand the hazard of the die we've also got an interesting one he also comes from kind of um, Caesar was quoted in Greek the Greek translate as let the die be cast or let the game be ventured Um, and from games of chance in which the outcome is determined by throwing of a dice or a single die popularized by the use by santianas when julius caesar crossed the rubicon to begin a civil war um, in the roman republic i think that one can be taken quite you know on the nose of sort of the the romulans and the cardassians going across into the the gamma quadrant and Bombing the Dominion. So, you know, that act, you know, basically wiped out the Cardassians. It damaged the Romulans. You would see the Romulans would essentially sign a non aggression pact. They really took their bloody nose with the Obsidian Order. We saw the Cardassians pretty decimated and leaving openings for the Klingons to go in and invade. And then, obviously, we all know what happened because of that. The Cardassians end up signing for the Dominion. So, you know, what happened here with that venture across the, the Rubicon into the, the Gamma Quadrant was something that would essentially begin this this war. This was the the moment the the die was cast.
0: Now that is very interesting. I I was not familiar with that, but you're right. According this is again according to the Wikipedia entry for crossing the Rubicon has Alea iacta est. According to Suetonius, Caesar uttered this famous phrase: "The die has been cast." I think that's the one. Yeah, absolutely. More more so than Shakespeare in this instance, I think. Um, and that is very interesting yeah thinking about this kind of mission and and how it's a kind of point of no return and also i mean obviously you know crossing the rubicon we have a rubicon in ds9 uh weirdly but we also do have these other references obviously we've got tons of references to kind of world war 2 history um but we do have these references to classical history because there's that line in um into armor enim Silent Leges, where Bashir says, which obviously, of course, has a Latin title itself, uh, where Bashir makes some remark about being Caesars, you, you know, about the kind of abuse of power, I suppose, in that in the kind of ancient Roman system. So I think that's that's very interesting that we've got a reference here to ancient history we've got all these references to kind of modern history in ds9 but we're also getting references to ancient history as well
1: yeah exactly it's it's a very very interesting kind of one beneath the the surface and I, i'm going to also just be say it just sounds really cool
0: <laughs> it does it does see that caesar you know knew how to turn a phrase clearly um next up from voyager we have faces this is such a weird episode i love this episode uh because it's so kind of batshit crazy uh and it it, it's quite a brutal episode in some ways and it's such a brutal title as well because you think oh yeah faces okay it's referring to balana she has these two you know two faces these two identities we talked about second skin and all these sorts of things you know this is the klingon balana and the human balana and then you realize you know later on the episode oh okay yeah it is literally an episode about uh faces you know someone's face gets ripped off and stitched onto another person um you know, and so you have this kind of face-off um, thing. I, I think it's a, it, it's it's one of those deceptively straightforward titles that actually, when you watch the episode, is quite um, meaningful and quite uh, has kind of depth to it. I suppose. I mean, whenever
1: anyone that's listening, and I'm sure it's the same for you, when we think about that title, I think we all have a, a very specific image comes to our to our head about yeah. sort of uh, faces <laughs> yeah. and what
0: faces. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to jump ahead. The next one I had sort of pinned down, unless you wanted to jump in on any of these, was Voyagers uh, coming back for season two with the 37s. Just because I think that has a lovely sort of sci-fi, almost sort of classic sci-fi mystery ring to it. This, uh, I mean, that's one of those episode titles that, until you've seen the episode, could almost mean anything. Do you know what I mean? And the fact it's got a number in there, it it just is a very intriguing title, and you kind of want to watch the episode to find out what on earth does this refer to?
1: Yeah, I, it's always been an episode title that stood out for me because there's just something so different about it. I mean, how many episode um, episode names have we got with like numbers in it? You know, we've got one zero 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 one. I mean, I'm sure mm-hmm. someone will correct me for <laughs> picking that one. but we don't have many episodes where it is just strictly kind of numbers like that. And I just think there's something about it where it just makes me interested it kind of catch my attention if I'm looking down that list of things you know that's a science fiction title and that sounds interesting that sounds cool the 37s what is that and that kind of catches me each time and I I just think it's a a really interesting kind of title
0: I'm sure I read somewhere years ago that one of the reasons that J. Michael Straczynski uh, came up with Babylon 5 as the title for his show was that he'd read somewhere that um, putting a number in the title uh, was sort of believed to boost interest among viewers. Do you know what I mean? That like, if you stick a number in there, it kind of intrigues people somehow. And it's interesting that at the same time as we had Babylon 5, obviously we had Deep Space Nine. Now we don't find out anything about Deep Space One to Eight. In Babylon 5, we do find out about the previous Babylon stations and their, their various stories. But I suppose it is another interesting element of Deep Space Nine that maybe we don't necessarily think about that typically in Star Trek, you know, we have the Enterprise, we have Voyager, we have, you, you know, Federation starships have quite evocative, uh, not titles, but names, you know, they're given names that are kind of meaningful and are kind of significant and suggest something, uh, e- either some kind of cultural um, reference point or some kind of... Um, Quality, I suppose, you know, if you think of enterprise, being enterprising, being, you know, voyaging, they're they're kind of embodying the sort of spirit of exploration and kind of um, uh, endeavour and, and, you know, doing something kind of brave and bold and uh, daring and so on. Deep Space Nine, we don't have any of that. I mean, they could have decided that the space stations all had kind of interesting exotic names and given that space station a sort of exotic name, but they didn't. They gave it a very bland boring uh name you know just calling it deep space nine is almost saying this is nothing do you know what i mean this is one of who knows how many deep space stations there are there could be you know dozens of them um but at the same time they get that nine in there maybe that's designed to sort of suck in the sci-fi viewers who are kind of drawn to a number for whatever reason
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's. I almost think of something like war as well. I think that was what George Lucas said when he was kind of right, came up with the title for Star Wars that you put war in the title, you will immediately get so many eyes on your kind of your film or your film title, will will gauge the interest. So yeah, that that's certainly an interesting one.
0: Voyager again with projections. I mean, this is an interesting title. I think this is another. Brand and Braga one, I think, um obviously it's about holograms, but there's also when you think of projection, you also kind of maybe think of the psychoanalytic idea of project you know projecting your feelings and so on, and I guess that's sort of what's going on in this episode insofar as there's this possibility in the episode that what's really going on is that Dr. Zimmerman is having some kind of delusional sort of breakdown or whatever, and is is sort of, that the, the hologram scenario is almost a projection of someone's mind. So I wonder if there's a kind of slight double meaning there of, you know, the projection of light, but also the projection, the sort of mental projection as well. Yeah, absolutely. Non sequitur, again, one of these Latin titles. Again, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I suppose, you know, a non sequitur is something that doesn't follow from what's gone before. I guess this episode doesn't really follow from what's gone before. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's it, like Harry finds himself in a strange situation with a sort of discontinuity, uh, and a question as to how he got there and how to get back to how things were before. But I don't know. Feel it, it's a very sort of generic. It it sounds quite specific, being in a foreign language, but it seems like a very generic way of describing the episode somehow.
1: Yeah, it, it it is that kind of one as well, isn't it? Sort of that it doesn't make kind of sense. I suppose that you wake up in a you know different time, a different situation. You didn't go on that ship,
0: and it's just trying to uh, sort of uh, kind of alter that, I guess. But then I suppose I suppose it, it's a phrase that doesn't carry any drama. Is the weird thing? Do you know what I mean? It, like if you wake up in a in a alien environment or you you know your whole reality has shifted or something that's quite a shocking and scary and weird and confusing and dreamlike and uh, strange experience whereas non sequitur just sounds very matter of fact somehow i don't know I, I i find it an odd title but obviously someone liked the latin titles um next up the way of the warrior which I think is a great title because it sounds like it was written by a Klingon. I mean, we had in Discovery that episode uh, that was the kind of Game of Thrones episode that sort of felt like it'd been directed by a Klingon. This is an episode that sounds like it's been written by a Klingon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a tale that stands out. And it's one of these ones, you're almost sort of surprised it's not been sort of a tale that's kind of gone before. You think of, oh, did I watch a samurai film when I was a kid called The the Way of the, Mm. the Warrior about some sort of ninjas or something like that? It has a very kind of, title, again, something like Face the Enemy where you're slightly stunned that it's an original kind of title for something like that I mean, I had a look at it and, you know, there wasn't anything that particularly kind of stood out as as being something like it before um, you know There's a descriptive term, and I'm going to absolutely butcher this, but it's called Bushido. So Bushido translated means the way of warriors, and it was a set of codes of honour and ideals that dictated the samurai way of life. Loosely um, means sort of like the European concept of chivalry. So uh, Bushido, way of the warrior, is a Japanese word, literally meaning the way of the warrior. It means warrior, military, chivalry, arms, means man or person, particularly one who is well-respected, Mr. Worf I think means example it means road, path, way, do in Japanese the samurai are generally called bushi it means the way of the warrior so um, yeah it's, it's interesting when you think of all the discussions that I've had about the Klingons they're the Russians, they're the Germans they're this, they're that you know and I suppose you think of Star Trek Discovery just now they're, they're considered Donald Trump, they're considered the you know the, the right sort of across the world at the moment no one ever sort of goes you know what those Klingons often remind me of kind of the samurai you know th- there are certainly elements that get played up on, on the series but yeah it's it's interesting that it's you know i think it's obviously been obviously sort of derived from there and there was a
0: bbc documentary series in 1983 called the way of the warrior sort of about asian martial arts that's interesting it definitely i suppose it sounds when i say it sounds like it was written by a klingon it sounds very much alluding to the ancient past in the way that the klingons are endlessly Doing, and I think there is that link to kind of the samurai or something there of this sort of myth of the yes, the sort of noble warriors of days gone by. Um, it's definitely in the, in that uh, kind of realm of these these Klingon myths, you know, uh, as much as being about the present day. I mean, in the present day, it's all sort of murky politics and a bit shifty and a bit, you, you know, you have Garrowon who is kind of the opposite of all of that in a way um but it sounds very grand and very heroic and very exciting uh, and indeed as an episode it is um then we've got voyager uh twisted fairly self-explanatory i guess parturition you know again a very technical term that most people probably won't even have come across uh it refers to the act of giving birth but rather than you know making A title that says something about i don't know well like we had galaxy's child didn't you didn't we that has something about you know a child or a baby or you know something like that to go with this very medical term um it's like in order to understand voyager episode titles you need an encyclopedia britannica in your house to go and you know in the kind of years before the internet to go and look these things up and think okay what on earth does parturition mean um and to go and look it up, it's almost kind of deliberately obscure language that they tend to go for with these very scientific titles. I know, I certainly
1: did that when I was a kid. Sometimes I would look at a Star Trek title, and it would be dusting off the the dictionary, the thesaurus, because that was sometimes the only way to do it. Sort of, you know, before the internet was
0: kind of prominent in people's homes. And maybe actually that's one reason behind these slightly obscure titles i mean people often talk about how you know they got into classical music or they got into shakespeare or they got into you know whatever else because it was referenced on star trek particularly say next gen which does a lot of kind of cultural reference points um and and gets people interested in or you know painting literature whatever it is uh Maybe they were deliberately doing that with some of these episode titles, thinking, okay, we're going to try and expand people's uh, vocabulary. <laughs> you know, expand your vocabulary with Star Trek, basically. Every week, you're going to get another really obscure uh, thing to go and look up and try and work out uh, what on earth it means. And now you can drop the word parturition into everyday conversation. That's something
1: I always loved about Star Trek. And I remember we, we've we obviously so both had the chance to, to interview Nick Meyer. And I, I said to him, I was like, watching his kind of films or shows us about Star Trek as a kid it made you feel sort of smarter because you'd be like, you'd hear a phrase like only Nixon could go to China. I mean I'm like you know a 8 year old boy at the time Who's Nixon? You know what? What does that mean? And there was the idea of sort of going on to sort of like your encyclopedia Britannicas, etc. You know, you're in Carters and typing in some of these things that come up in the Star Trek episodes that you were probably just rewatching endlessly on on video because you wanted to expand your knowledge of right. I you know the technobabble that's a given that makes no sense, but what does Nixon go to China what is you know the music that Picard is listening to in his ready room as he's sort of reflecting on the Borg heading to Earth all those things it made you sort of feel like a richer Star Trek fan for being able to sort of take the time to to research them and I think that's something we've perhaps lost with these kind of current shows because we have one each and every week we have access to everything everyone you know it's all immediate you perhaps sometimes don't have the time to really sit with some of these new episodes and and really dive into sort of some of the deeper things with kind of the the Easter eggs.
0: Well yeah, absolutely. I mean we used to have, you know, you know all about the VHS tapes. I remember in those days you'd get, you know, you'd have your two episodes and then you'd have a a wait for a while, wouldn't you? I suppose when, when Deep Space Nine and Voyager were on, maybe you'd have four for the how often were those tapes released? Were they once a fortnight? It's it sort of felt anyway, if you know if you went out and bought the tape on the day it was available, you could binge on a handful of new Star Trek episodes and then you had quite a while to wait. And if you were a diehard fan, you know, rewatch those episodes over and over again, uh, until the next ones came along. I suppose that's similar in some ways to those who are watching it on TV. Cause I know particularly in the States, often an episode would be repeated, you know, within the, the week or whatever. But, um, I think it did probably affect, it did give you an element of these kind of micro binges, uh, in a way. If you were consuming, you know, as I was certainly, um, you know, the UK fans consuming Star Trek via these VHS tapes rather than catching it when it was broadcast, you know, um, because you did have the excitement of this new thing that had these like, you know, a couple of episodes on it that you would then, as you say, watch over again and again and kind of learn more about and dig into and dig around and kind of, um you know, try and find out the answer to all these questions that, uh you know, in the time before the internet, when you couldn't go and, um, you know, just, Type it into memory, Alfred, and have all that information at your fingertips.
1: I guess that's what we're paying tribute to in this this series that you and Tony have devised. <laughs> it
0: is, yeah, I suppose. Going back to the, I don't know, yeah, tedious level of detail. <laughs> um, the visitor. This uh, obviously an amazing episode, but I think is a great title as well because it's another one of those where you assume it refers to one thing. You assume it's the the girl who arrives in the first scene. Uh, and is literally a visitor kind of knocking on the door in the middle of the night. You assume it's about her. And then as you watch the episode, you realize actually there's another visitor that is what this story is really about. And the visitor is Cisco who keeps, uh, making these sort of visitations, you know, like a ghost. Um, I mean, we talk about ghosts kind of visiting the, the living, um, and that there's a kind of double meaning there. And that I suppose Cisco is almost sort of haunting the title of the episode, just as he's haunting Jake effectively. I always think of
1: the, the Visitor as well I mean yes it is their title but there's something kind of homely about it as well sort of i can imagine it you know jake Sisko, the author and the visitor i can almost imagine sort of browsing a bookshelf in an airport or a wh smith and just seeing something like the visitor by by jake Sisko. something like that it just makes me think of of an author a book you know something someone would, would pick up and and read you know I, I, that's something
0: that always gets evoked to me when i i think of the visitor it's also very unscientific. I mean, again, for an episode which is all about like subspace and, you, you know, the techno babble and so on, uh, the title, it doesn't go that Voyager route of calling it, I don't know, subspace inversion, whatnot. Or do, do you know what I mean? It's, it's giving it a kind of science, leaning on the science. It leans very much on the human and the interaction and the idea of, you know, a visitor ultimately like you say it's this homely thing but it's homely insofar as it is someone arriving in your home do you know what i mean it is and that's what we have uh in that first scene you know we literally have someone kind of knocking on the door um so yes i think you're right it kind of gives it a not cozy exactly but it 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 frames it in the the interaction between two people rather than in the kind of grand uh scientific um uh, frame, if you know what I mean. And, the, and that, you know, and also, you know, this is an episode where we, we see the future of the federation and we see the, how things go with the Klingons, you know, we see glimpses of all this kind of big stuff, but it frames it very much on a small personal human interaction.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I think it's it's it definitely feels feels appropriate for for the episode we get. It's, it's definitely one of the the titles that sort of has mm. you know a lot of wonderful meanings and isn't just kind of as you say, it's not just someone coming to to knock on. There's a lot to kind of mine from it.
0: Now, um, Hippocratic Oath. Uh obviously, the Hippocratic Oath, Hippocrates, this is the kind of foundation of medical ethics going back to AD 275, I think. Um, as far as I can remember, there's no actual discussion of the Hippocratic Oath in this episode, but I think it's kind of taken for granted that this is an episode about medical ethics. This is uh, a reference point to the very beginning of this sort of concept of medical ethics, I suppose. And so the title is uh, sort of invoking that. But it's interesting that it's doing it in a way that is not totally straightforward. Insofar as I don't think it's an episode that is saying Bashir is right and O'Brien is wrong necessarily, and the Hipp- Hippocratic Oath is always, you know, that the Hippocratic Oath should, um, and saying that the Hippocratic Oath should kind of outweigh all other considerations. I feel it's a little bit more, uh, tricky than that. And maybe it's the element which we do see in Star Trek quite op- often, um, of these Doctor characters having a sort of dual loyalty. You know, they have their kind of loyalty to Starfleet, their loyalty to the law, but they also have their loyalty to not just individual patients, but to this kind of um, idea of what it means to be a Doctor. So you have episodes where you have, you know, Picard and Beverly kind of at odds with each other because he's saying, we have to do this thing, we have to follow the Prime Director, we have to do blah, blah, blah. And she's saying, sorry, I'm a Doctor. I'm a Doctor first, and then I'm a Starfleet officer, and I have to do what is right as a doctor. There's this kind of um this sort of code of ethics that almost supersedes the code of Starfleet and the kind of hierarchy and the chain of command and all these other things.
1: Yeah, I agree there. And I think with like the Hippocratic, well, again it's Bashir is he is determined to to help these people, to, to cure them. You know, we'll certainly see that a little bit later in this season with um forget the name of the episode but i always remember it comes after um, to the death so it's one of these ones like it, it it's kind of a, a run of things that we'll see with with bashir as he sort of starts to develop further as a kind of character this year and sort of that conflict between sort of him and and o'brien what his his oath to help these people you know and obviously o'brien's more out for
0: for them for for themselves really then we have indiscretion um this is a great uh title insofar as I think it's this is how a Cardassian would refer to the topic of this episode if you know what I mean it's it's such a kind of political speak somehow you know it's not about a child it's not about um anything kind of uh emotional or kind of meaningful it's about it's an indiscretion do you know what I mean it's almost like brushing it aside somehow um it it feels it feels very much like like that kind of um I don't know, not, not propaganda exactly. It it, it it sort of evokes something of that attitude, uh, in the title, um, that they chose in there. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with you on that one. Back to Voyager persistence of vision. Again, we've got this kind of technical language. This is, uh, a kind of optical illusion, which I'm going to look it up, but it, it basically is when you continue to see something. Uh, when you're no longer looking at it. I think that's what the persistence of vision is. Persistence of vision traditionally refers to the optical illusion that occurs when visual perception of an object does not cease for some time after the rays of light proceeding from it have ceased to enter the eye. I guess that would be, uh, you know, obviously if you look at a, there are those things, aren't there, where you kind of um, look at something and then look at a white wall and then the, the thing that you were looking at is kind of projected onto the wall and, and so on. It kind of makes sense actually in the, context of this episode because this is the episode where we have uh holograms from the holodeck persisting sort of into the real world seemingly do you know what i mean so there is this element of something that is kind of optical uh moving into reality or sort of moving outside its boundaries somehow um so quite a well chosen title on the other hand i think it is another one of these ones that seems slightly obscure and is hard to you know, remember. It, it's one, of like, I'm aware it's a Voyager title. I have to kind of bend my brain a bit to think, okay, actually, which episode is that? And that's the danger, I think, with some of these scientific titles. But it, it could be, you know, obviously, you know, I did a degree in English literature. For me, the kind of literary titles are easier to remember and to kind of uh tag onto the episodes. Probably someone who's uh study classics or the latin titles make perfect sense and are kind of easily remembered i mean for me it's the science ones cuz probably that's my sort of weak spot that blur all into one but i don't know you know maybe for other fans uh it it works differently i mean maybe if you're a more scientifically minded person then all these science titles they kind of mean more to you and potentially shakespeare quotations don't do you know what i mean so i think it's another language sometimes isn't it with science
1: exactly it's another
0: language that's what it feels like yeah
1: yeah and i i always definitely think of a lot of these science titles they just feel sort of synonymous with the, the first two seasons of of kind of voyager there's just so many of them that stand out kind of like this it's it's slightly slightly
0: frustrating a very technical one back to ds9 starship down uh feels like an old movie or something I, I don't know what what this quite evokes i don't know what it evokes to you but uh, i like it it's very straightforward but it sounds it sounds like a kind of uh a kind of gritty old movie somehow
1: yeah it's that classic um i think the their objective with this episode was sink the defiant um i wish i could sort of pull the, the names of the sort of movies off to but you sort of think of you know w- the classic obviously not warship down but there's probably various other like sink the bismarck and um, we would come off the head like the poseidon adventure you know starship down i just think it's such an exciting kind of kind of title it, it does what it says in the book and it's it's one of those ones that that draws you to to the shelf
0: or to the the episode on netflix absolutely um again with ds9 little green men uh very funny cheeky episode and a kind of cheeky title for it as well uh one of those kind of knowing jokey titles i guess Mm -hmm. yeah i would agree um cold fire this was the episode when i spoke to Brandon braga that he couldn't even remember writing so uh obviously i I didn't go so far as to ask him why he called it that but i mean it's a i think it's a great title whatever you think of the episode it's got that kind of sense of paradox it's quite scary it sounds both you know because fire is scary but also the cold is quite chilling um and it's a, and it's mysterious insofar as you think, well, what does it mean? Because it's paradoxical. Um, so I, I sort of think on that level, it works quite well in that it, it conveys something quite threatening and, and mysterious. Whether it really matches up with the episode, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a, a bit of a vague one, except that there is a bit of, I suppose superior there is a bit of kind of fire stuff going on with Kess and then there is she seems quite kind of cold and a bit freaky and and you know mean but um I don't know about that one what do you think
1: I've always think of sort of the cold fire I almost think of like the rock you know this this the this rock that kind of kicks off. I don't know why I always I get drawn to that. I always think of it perhaps like cold fire, coal fire. I'm always slightly disappointed as well that that we don't sort of call it Suspiria as a fan of the Dario Argento uh, original and sort of the, the most current remake. Um, I would have thought that would have been quite an interesting kind of title to to go with, but obviously um, you can kind of slowly get away with it a little bit more, just having a character named Suspiria, let alone an episode title, um, you know, which would be clearly,
0: clearly more than sort of like um, a reference. It would be quite a a bit of a pull. It's a weird episode as well, because it's such an odd counterpart to Caretaker. I mean, and and it has that, you know, previously on Star Trek Voyager going back way, you know, a season and a half, basically, to the pilot episode. This is the episode that's going to pay off off that kind of lingering question the fact that she's called Suspiria is so weird because it immediately makes her sound terrifying (laughs) and you know whether or not you've seen the Dario Argento film but particularly if you have uh it kind of immediately invokes this kind of sense of horror and and uh fear um before the episode sort of does anything to uh make you think that might be justified it's weird in a way that the character is not a counterpart you know we've had the caretaker why is she not the something else do you know what i mean that has some other um a bit like in doctor who they have all the you know there's the doctor obviously and the master and the i don't know what the other ones are called do you know what i mean these people are defined by these kind of these uh sort of jobs or titles or positions or whatever they are the um What's the one? The Valyard. I have no idea what that means. I don't don't watch enough Doctor Who, but like I'm, I'm aware there are these kind of um, there are these names, there are these kind of expressions. Um, But she is not one of those. She's given a name, and she's given a really freaky, scary name. And equally, this episode does not, in any way, is not in any way Caretaker Part Three. It's such a weird, different thing that does its own thing. Uh, It's a strange one. And then the title again, it doesn't feel. In any way linked to the episode that it's kind of picking up from. It's, it's a, it's, it's a strange one. I think it's a strange episode and it's a strange title, but I quite like it as a. Um, I think it's quite a bold title. It's quite a strong title.
1: I would actually say it's one of my favourite episodes from from early Star Trek Voyager. I mean, I, I think it goes in a really dark, dark place with some of the the imagery. I, I think it's a very bold episode, and as you say, that kind of previously on bit is is such an anomaly in sort of Star Trek history where you basically have Major Barrett kind of narrating. Ten months ago, the USS Voyager yeah. <laughs> landed in the. You're like, yeah. I recently rewatched the episode. I was like. I can't remember this and stuff. And I, I I watched it back that little previously on bit twice. I was like, that is so surprising, you
0: know, when you can, can consider how some of the previously on bits have been done in the past. You're right. It's quite, it's probably unique. I think it's it's, it's an odd one. Uh, I guess we get, again, with Discovery, we get that previously on Star Trek and we get this kind of weird uh, montage effect there. But it, it it is odd to go back that far, I think, to pick up something that's been pretty much dropped and forgotten about and then to do it in such a weird way back to ds9 we've got the sword of kalos which again i guess guess has that sort of grand that that, you know obviously is a kind of grand klingon mythology thing but um quite a grand title for that then we've got our man bashir great episode um oddly in some ways i felt that it's not a Bond, since this is a Bond spoof, that the title is not a Bond spoof, but it's a spoof of, or a reference anyway, to Alman Flint, which was a previous uh, 1960s, I think, kind of parody of Bond, basically. So it's weird, the title is not even referencing a James Bond movies, but is referencing a spoof of James Bond movies in its own spoof of James Bond movies, um, which seems strange to me because I would have thought Our Man Flint is slightly more obscure than you know they could have called it I don't know well who knows on the Federation Secret Service or I, I, do you want know I mean like so they could have they could have made a kind of jokey title that linked Bond and Star Trek but instead they made a jokey title that linked Star Trek and a Bond spoof but um obviously everyone knows it's a Bond thing anyway and it's you, you know it's a great episode there's something funny about it being a parody within a parody yeah, absolutely. I suppose there is something in that in a way. Um, and you know, maybe that's deliberate. Maybe that is part of it, or maybe it's just kind of, um, a tip of the hat almost to say, you know, we're not the first, uh, to come up with a Bond parody. And, and I mean, there are many, you, you know, you think of Austin Powers or, you know, whatever there is, a, it is almost a kind of genre in itself of kind of spoofing James Bond, which is, which is a, a kind of, and I mean, without wanting to get into a whole digression about James Bond is a weird thing because it's sort of, James Bond himself is a character who's both quite serious but also quite frivolous and jokey. Do you know what I mean? Like his his job obviously is very gritty and serious and and so on, but he's constantly wisecracking and like um uh, I don't know if that's the case in the novels but certainly in the films and increasingly as time goes on he becomes almost a parody of himself, I suppose you think of the bond at the time was Pierce Brosnan very
1: much that kind of blending between the sort of Connery and Roger Moore that this kind of episode seems to do sort of a a bit larger than life a little bit of an edge to it but ultimately something that was sort of still paying tribute to kind of the you know the 80s in in a way a little bit sort of the Roger Moore era as opposed to sort of the, the more darker kind of Timothy Dalton you could you could probably see them sort of being kind of fans of that kind of you know that was in the cinema at the time you had sort of I think Tomorrow Never Dies had not long kind of been out at this point so you know that was the the bond of the time certainly
0: had it. I was thinking this was more sort of GoldenEye era is that I, I hadn't realised Tomorrow Never Dies
1: yeah I think Tomorrow Never Dies was 96
0: 97? 97 97 yeah late 97 so yes, when yeah. was, oh, man, this Bashir uh, 96 oh. late 95 well, no, no 95 I've got 95 here when was GoldenEye hang on Ninety four. Because I sort of so so um yeah. So this comes between ninety five. Goldeneye. See, I I think this must have been linked at some level to Goldeneye coming out and, and James Bond sort of coming back. Uh, you know, I remember that that period. Goldeneye was the first Bond film that I saw in the cinema. Whereas I think I think Tomorrow Never Dies was would have been a bit after this episode but but yeah absolutely i think you're right it's the pierce brosnan bond that is the most that is in the kind of public eye at that moment but obviously Bashir's bond is kind of going back to the 60s and that kind of um i suppose more that sort of connery era and and the kind of spoofing of it next up from ds9 we've got another one of these great two-parters with uh separate titles, Homefront and Paradise Lost. Homefront's an interesting one, I think, because, you know, again, we sort of immediately think of uh, I don't know, the Second World War or kind of you know, kind of 20th century um warfare. Is it really the home front, you know, is this about the home front of a war? Or is it that that's kind of what they want us to believe? Do you know what I mean? But actually, there's only a handful of operatives uh working there but kind of giving the impression of something much bigger and then paradise lost obviously sort of picking up on this idea of paradise that was brought up in the marquee and and sort of sort of you know teasing apart that idea that uh ds9 has kind of floated in a way as as sort of saying you know this um earth is paradise but paradise can easily be destroyed or corrupted or kind of uh given up
1: yeah, I think so as well. And again, it goes back to sort of that transition from when you think of something like Homefront. I'm thinking of World War, the World War one uh, and two again, again, that, you know, pulling from from um, kind of that most recent kind of history period. you know, we've, we've there's been so much focus on the Civil War, the Western era. Again, we're, we're diving into that World War, World War imagery. And I think Paradise Lost as well. I mean, that that sums up Deep Space Nine as well. Again, it's easy to be a, a saint in, in Paradise. And, and, and you know, what we think of this wonderful federation that we're always told about pretty much up until this episode. And there we go, we've got troops on the street. I mean, think of what we just heard today in sort of the, the news in Britain. You know, there's going to be potentially troops on the street to make sure that people aren't getting takeouts at 10 o'clock or having house parties. You know, the most basic of freedoms, you know, we're at a point now where, you know, there's a lot to be said about it, but we're at a tipping point in our history where those freedoms are being infringed upon because of a a pandemic and the government have got to act in that way. I mean, if you had said that to someone two months ago, a year ago, you know, their mind would have been blown at the concept of thinking about that.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, not to date this podcast too much, but you you know, you're right. This is the the day when we had the latest, not quite lockdown, but kind of heading in that direction uh, for the second wave. And I thought of all the announcements that we heard today, that was the most surprising one. This idea that, oh, the police are not going to be able to cope with the number of people snitching on their neighbours. So if needs be, we're going to draft the army in to enforce these, you know, 100, 200 pound fines or whatever. I mean, that I do find slightly chilling and a slightly, uh, I don't know, it's a slightly, it's a scary prospect, the idea, um, particularly at the moment. I mean, not so much here in Britain, but, you know, the stuff that we've seen in America, particularly, uh, you know, over the whole Black Lives Matter and so on, and police brutality and all these kind of things. Uh, And, and, you know, to a lesser extent, we've had some of that here as well. But um, I suppose the attention has been much more on the United States. Um, But bringing in the army to deal with something like that just sounds like a, You know, like, as it is in this Star Trek episode, it's a terrible idea. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's a really uh, desperate measure and one that is bound to lead to trouble.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the games, it's... Star Trek Deep Space Nine seems to predict things all over, all over again and so on. You know, I, yeah. it's, it's one of these ones that time and again, things kind of do tend to, to repeat themselves. And, um, yeah, we, we saw in World War, and I suppose so many of these world leaders, you know, you hear things about, you know, people want to be wartime presidents, wartime leaders, the Blitz spirit, mm. you know a lot of these things, whether it's in science fiction or kind of present day kind of situation, is ultimately drawing on that World War
0: imagery and um, sort of, you know, ideas, I guess. Well, that's an interesting point, since the first part of this 2 part is called Homefront. And again, I think to me that sort of conjures this idea of, of World War II. Um, when I suppose, you know, people do draw parallels between the current situation and World War II, when people were expected to have their lives turned upside down and kind of, um you know, and also were worried about dying suddenly and unexpectedly. And, you, you know, yeah, I mean, there's a kind of parallel there, I guess, for sure. Heading back to Voyager, Threshold, this is a notorious episode. I feel this is quite a bland title for one of the most, uh as um what's his name, Maurice Hurley would call it Wacky Doodle, episodes that star trek has ever produced um i sort of wonder is it almost does this episode almost exist on a threshold is this a kind of threshold of taste or a threshold of what's possible or a kind of um is it almost a sort of jumping the shark moment i mean we think of jumping the shark as a you know that is a kind of threshold of when a show like just loses its grip on reality <laughs> somehow uh and, and that's not to say that this was that for voyager because i don't think it had any real lasting implications but it was definitely an episode where they went off the deep end somehow they kind of pushed things further than uh maybe anyone was expecting
1: yeah i think so as well again it, it, it as you see it's a very bland title for something that is a a very bizarre episode i mean i'm particularly fond of this episode within sort of the context of of star trek voyager and um, that's a, a topic for perhaps another podcast, but yeah, the, I, I think ultimately it's a, it's a pretty generic one word kind of title to describe, you know, that really undersells the, the wackiness of, of this
0: episode. Jumping over to DS nine, I had bar association. Uh, this is another slightly lame legal pun, I guess, insofar as the bar association is, is a, is a legal concept, I think. And, and this is an association in a bar, uh, I don't know that it doesn't massively work for me, but I like the episode, so you know who cares.
1: Yeah, again, it's it's one of these ones. Another, I think there's a couple of episodes like that where it draws on sort of a like, we've obviously discussed it with ex post facto sort of that legal jargon and so on. So yeah,
0: that's going to be um, going to be good. Death wish. Interestingly, this is a cue episode with no cue in the title. It's almost like it's sort of signalling. Yeah, okay, this is a Q episode, but this is not a funny one, so we're not you know, there's no jokes this time. Although actually there are a fair number of jokes in the episode, uh, but I think that humour is handled quite deftly and quite successfully in the context of an episode that has something more serious to say. Uh but it's interesting this is a rare Q episode by this point that doesn't go for a coupon.
1: Yeah, it's a very dark Title as well, isn't it? It's it's one of those ones like you you think of sort of the I think there's obviously the 1974 film with like Charles Bronson, you know, a, a very edgy dark thing. You know, it, I was very surprised that again, you know, we just touched on bar association. It's ultimately a legal drama. And when I remembered sort of hearing that, oh my God, Q's coming to Voyager, and I wanted to get that VHS from from Blockbuster because you're like, oh, it's going to be Q. I remember being really disappointed that it was a, a kind of legal drama as the time as a kid. But as an adult, I've come to to really enjoy enjoy the episode and and that kind of legal angle they take it's it's something pretty unique.
0: Absolutely, um, Voyager again. Life signs, I suppose, are the life's are the signs of life in the patient, or this or is this really about signs of life in the doctor? I think this is one of those episodes where the title can slightly can mean more than one thing because this is one of the kind of key moments, I suppose, in the doctor's ongoing arc of becoming a person becoming alive in a sense.
1: Yeah, that was the impression I got from it as well. You know, venturing outside onto Mars, the holodeck programme. You know, it's like talking about these feelings as if, you know, he's been some sort of like robot and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's the life signs I would have taken as well for it.
0: Back to DS9, um, rules of engagement. This was another one that struck me that this is a contemporary military term rather than something kind of sci-fi it just just feels like another one of these titles that slightly wants to ground ds9 in the real world you know like life support or like um you know whatever these other uh phrases whether these kind of phrases that are, are specific to a particular uh area or sphere of life or professional organization or you know in this case the military or whatever uh, in another case it might be medicine or whatever but are very much from our own real world
1: yeah, exactly. It's it's one of those ones I think the, the rules of um, engagement is something that you can imagine sort of, even though it's in the future, it's cloaked ships, it's federation ships, etc, that the rules of engagement will sort of apply. I mean, you hear it every so often in, in Star Trek episodes, all like something play on like the Geneva Convention or certain accords that are drawn from history that get renewed sort of into the future as well. So you can imagine sort of there is probably an element of are the rules of engagement that we know just now sort of being given a scientific twist, even in sort of the twenty fourth century?
0: Um, then we have hard time. No, I don't know. Is this meant to be a pun? I mean, obviously O'Brien is doing time. Hard time is uh, a thing for like doing a long, long shift. In, in oh, is digital. it? Is that an yeah, expression? Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, it, I've got. I've been given been given hard time, and I think it probably comes from the element of sort of the work that this is off the top of my head. I'm, I'm sure Google or something will prove me wrong. But hard time is that you know, being put away, but also being able to sort of g- physically graft during it. So probably you think of like slave gangs or something like that in terms of, well, prison gangs. exactly. Ah, um, okay. That would probably be my feeling, sort of the doing hard time.
0: That's interesting. I just come up with as well, slang time actually served in prison. He'd maybe been fine before, now he's since the 90s, hard time. Okay, so maybe it's just another word for prison. So what's, so, but then what's the difference between doing time and doing hard time?
1: Well, just I think that there's bad. doing
0: doing time
1: but then hard time means that it, it's like the <laughs> oh, lengthy it's the service. Yeah, it's, it's okay, a lengthy time and stuff. So um, so typically when someone does or has done hard time, it means they're doing or have done a lengthy sentence. These days, even though you may have inmates since 20 years or more, they are not doing hard time. They are, aren't are required to work or do any type of physical labor and often lay in their bunk on their cells. Uh, I think that becomes an opinion piece at uh, point there. But yeah, very much sort of... Um, it's a length, lengthy prison service.
0: Okay, that makes perfect sense. Shattered mirror, I guess, again, we're kind of stretching the mirror analogy. It, it, like, the mirror episode's almost in danger of becoming the next Q episodes in that we have to find different ways of referring to mirrors one way or another. Um, but here, the mirror's, you know, shattered. They could have gone with, I don't know, the mirror cracked from side to side or something um, if they wanted to get a bit more literary. But... Uh, I guess there's that sense also of, of, you know, it's shattered because there's a kind of emotional fallout and a kind of um, an element of, uh, I don't know, this is not so much fun. This isn't just an adventure into Wonderland. There's There's a kind of emotional underpinning to the story here.
1: Yeah, and I think shattered mirror it comes with you know bad luck, um, you know of course. It, yeah. So th- there's an element there as well. I, I think that you know ultimately again it's one of these ones you could just thread these these mirrored titles um, and as an arc and so on. But yeah, ultimately the the bad luck. I think uh, it's been a long time since I remember. Sort of obviously Jennifer passes away at the end as well. So you know the you know it's is very much sort of. You, can imagine it's a horrific experience to see that your wife die once, but to go through it again, you know, that is that is terrible, terrible
0: luck that only could happen in science fiction. <laughs> That's true, absolutely. Probably only in DS9, as far as Star Trek's concerned. Voyager the Thor. This is such a boring title for such, again, a sort of wacky, crazy, weird episode. And so not, I mean, at the very least, they could have called it The Clown. I don't, I don't understand why they called the episode The Thor
1: yeah it's such a misleading one isn't it like i i've i've every time I've watched that and it's an episode i'm I'm really fond of I actually just watched it again the other day I like go oh, i I don't know where the this title comes from, what it means and so on um you know or even calling it something like fear itself. I, I just, I just don't get, get the, the, the t- choice of the title here. I mean, I think they talked about the planet going through sort of like a, a frozen winter chill or holocaust. Uh, again, that's something that we don't really see. It's, it's the, the dullest title that they could have picked for such an exciting standout
0: episode. Back to DS9. We have these weird titles that sound like, um, they should be a two-parter, but they're not. For the cause and to the death. Now, I don't know how they came to have these two back to back. Uh because they're not linked, really, but they they weirdly have almost almost identical titles or, or or like identically phrased titles somehow. I just think that's quite interesting. And again, you know, going back to the VHS tapes, if you get a VHS tape with those two on it, you're kind of like, what's going on here? You know, you know, <laughs> this this really feels like it should be signalling a two-parter, and yet it isn't. Yeah. Um and to the death again it's
1: it's so dramatic. I mean, I remember sort of seeing that one as as you say like you can imagine that as a VHS car. I mean, that had like a, a like a big 15 rating on it. I mean, that is something that you don't get unless you've got like a violence sex and so on and you know th- that certainly stood out and, and for the cause as well I mean this was doing something better than Voyager had done ever really sort of addressing kind of the Maquis and sort of it reminds you that it, w- it was a cause and even like you see sort of the repercussions of it how deep it goes the, the sympathies within Federation you know people out with it traders and so on I just think you can see why it would be such a, an inspiring cause to, to get involved with and why you would think the Federation
0: were being real stick in the Months about it. Jumping ahead a little bit, I, I, I'm going to gloss over a handful of episodes here. I just, one thing that jumped out at me was Voyager's flashback, just because we were talking about these kind of rather boring, mundane episodes. Again, our I, I flashback is slightly more interesting than the thought, but doesn't really sell this grand anniversary uh, experience. Um, And, you know, we're going to get with DS9 Trials and Tribulations, which is a clever, funny, kind of witty, jokey title, uh, playing with the nostalgia and so on. Flashback is almost, I don't know, it's weird because a flashback is almost not nostalgia. Do you know what I mean? Like, And and DS9 finds a way of doing the nostalgic thing by actually going back into the past and kind of re-experiencing it and sort of reframing it and playing with it. Uh, whereas this episode is literally just dropping in a flashback and a flashback is such a kind of almost a cliche of you know tv writing in a way it feels like quite a lazy way of doing it and just calling it flashback almost seems to emphasize that some way emphasizes the kind of laziness of this approach to doing a big 30th anniversary episode i don't know it just seems like again a slightly it's a Boring episode, really, and it's a boring title.
1: I, I completely agree with you. It's an episode I really want to like because of sort of the significance of it and, and how perfect Trials and Tribulations was. I mean, this is just an episode that just does nothing. I mean, you, I, I watched it just the other day and I think it was like 20 minutes into the episode where we sort of flash back to the, um, to being on the bridge of the Excelsior and you think of like the excitement of... Um, the pre-title sequence for Trials and Tribulations where like it ends with, oh my god, there's the Enterprise on screen, straight into adventure action, someone gets to do everything. And this is like, you know, what the hell's this kind of whole plot with the, the little girl? I just think it's a very uninspired one. And it was no surprise that they had sort of the A plot of this already kind of drawn about sort of this parasite memory. Um, I mean, but they should have learned from Shades of Grey that doesn't always make for the most exciting sort of um, television. So um, yeah, it's it's it was
0: just a uh, as you say an unimaginative title for an unimaginative episode by and large. And again, as we go forward the next few episodes, I think you really see that kind of difference between the typical Voyager episodes and the kind of more uh, creative uh, DS9 titles. We got the Shoot, we got the Swarm, and then we got from DS9 Apocalypse Rising such a kind of grand uh title a very over the top you know voyager seems to downplay things that so you have the thor which is a really like a wacky crazy episode with a really bland title uh the voyager title seem to want to make the show seem more bland than it is the ds9 title seems to want to make the show seem more grandiose and uh OTT somehow than it is even um, I mean Apocalypse Rising is a great title I think it maybe slightly oversells uh, what's going to go on in this episode but I guess there is that sense that this is about hints of the war to come there's something brewing there's something terrible sort of on the horizon um, and this is a sort of glimpse at that in a way
1: yeah again it's one of the things like you think where they are out with Federation sounds like a dominion has got to, to the brink of, of power and you think of the idea that what happens if someone you know some Russian agent got to be at the top of the White House or something like that, was in charge of the nuclear codes and so on, which is essentially what we're being, you know, faced, the prospect we face is that all that war that's just going to take, you know, all the Federation, all the kind of Cardassians in, in the Alpha Quadrant down with them. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly
0: dramatic and an indication of what could happen with a, a changeling at the top. Followed by Voyager False Profits. Now this really is a DS9 title. They've stolen. They've effectively stolen a DS9 pun here for a Voyager episode by uh, making their profit profit, uh, you know, joke. But um, probably a better title than it is an episode. I would say in some ways.
1: Yeah, again, it, it's one of those ones. It's that nice sort of little um, episode title kind of tie along that kind of bring, brings together a lot of
0: these kind of Ferengi episodes. The next one I wanted to pick up was DS9's Looking for Parmach in All the Wrong Places. A great, again, this is the kind of episode title only DS9. I mean, the original series had, you know, the, um, For the World is Hollow and I have touched the sky, but DS9 by this point, sort of going into fifth season, I think, really starting to lean into the quite creative titles. This one, uh, taking its title from, a 1980s country and western song uh so really kind of like pushing it a bit in terms of like what are we going to draw on but then substituting in this klingon word um fantastic title i think one of my favorite star trek episode titles really because it's just so cheeky and kind of um offbeat uh somehow um And brilliant you know sticking it uh, again you know when you talk about obscurity and having to look things up you know here we're going to actually stick a a word in an invented language into the title that you're going to have to watch the episode to find out what it means unless you happen to be fluent in Klingon
1: yeah, again, I think season five, they have some amazing... I think this is probably the most exciting season probably within Deep Space Nine for for episode titles. And I think this is another one that that really, really stands out. I
0: mean, you just feel like they've just got total freedom at this point. They can get away with anything they want. And this is followed by the first of two biblical quotations uh in this season, which come almost back to back in DS9. In between, we have the assignment... Fairly straightforward, I guess. And Trials and Tribulations, which you talked about. Great, funny, playful title. The two that I'm thinking of are we have Nor the Battle to the Strong with a dot, dot, dot at the beginning. Uh, This is taken from Ecclesiastes 9.11. Then we have Let He Who Is Without Sin with a dot, dot, dot at the end. Uh, In this case taken from John 8. So two biblical quotations in the space of four DS9 episodes. Obviously, DS9 is the show that leans on the kind of religious uh, stuff. But generally, it's the Bajoran religious stuff. It's quite unusual, and particularly, you know, unusual for Star Trek to be actually leaning on the Bible like this. And obviously, we sort of get that comment later in Far Beyond the Stars, where Cisco's um, father, in the, you know, real world, in quote marks, uh, makes a quotation from the Bible. And Cisco says, that's not like you, you know, like, that's, that's very unusual that you should be quoting from the Bible or whatever. And I feel there's almost... There's an element of that here, like this is not what we expect from Star Trek in a sense uh this is kind of a bold departure um but again, there's this weird thing like we had with for the Cause until the death. These two episodes, which have nothing in common uh you know one of them is a kind of grim war story, one of them is a ropey riser romp um. But they've got this weird thing in common. They've both got these dot, dot, dots, and they've both got these biblical quotations. Um, it's almost like, you know, someone that week was, uh, you know, when they were trying to name some of the latest episodes they were working on, they they kind of pulled them out of the same hat somehow. Interesting to
1: note that, um, you know, The Battle of the Strong, the original working title was A Portrait of Life, certainly. Much less of an exciting kind of, of draw there. But yeah, I, I just, I think that, again sort of the you nor know, the battle to the strong sort of these weaker kind of characters on quote paper. It's not the scientists, it's sorry, it's not the soldiers, it's the kind of scientists, it's the blue shirts that are being kind of tackled in this episode, you know, the journalists, the people that are, you know, ultimately the casualties and so on that really suffer badly. I think it's such a an interesting kind of title as as well. And Yeah, it's a real kind of flurry of of interesting kind of titles. I think when you think of the writers of of Deep Space Nine, you you know, you obviously... Think of someone like Brandon Braga when you spoke with him about all sort of the horror references that he pulled from. I always got the impression that the the writing room of of Deep Space Nine were so varied of of interests and, and backgrounds and so on um, that they were able to pull a lot of these titles from from really interesting and different kind of facets. Whether it's an old country song or something like the Bible, from
0: with complete ease. We should say also, I mean, what the what these titles allude to. I mean, nor the battles are the strong. The quotation is, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favour to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So I guess just this idea that um, people don't necessarily get their just desserts, in a sense, you know, the strong don't always win the battle, that there's an element of luck and chance and kind of... um, I suppose almost the cruelty of, of fate in play somehow. Um, I guess there's also a sense with the title that this is an episode about Jake being on the front lines. Jake is not a fighter. It's very much about someone who's, who's not strong being caught up in all of that. Uh, but also this sort of sense of being in the wrong place at the wrong time and the, and the bad luck and so on. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I suppose there's this sense that, you know, these terrorists or whatever are being sort of righteous and and telling other people what to do. And, you know, Worf is the one who shouldn't be casting any stones. Although, you know, arguably Worf is pretty close to someone without sin because he's so severe and strict and, and kind of um, hard on himself and everyone else. But I suppose that's the, that's the idea is that, you, you know, um, don't go around telling other people that they're bad <laughs> you know i suppose don't uh you know don't think you're better than anyone else and and Worf certainly is someone who does think that he's better than other people yeah for, for sure and I, I think
1: anyone that can take that away
0: from that episode about Worf being the old stick in the mud voyager meanwhile um around this time uh just one episode that i i thought i'd touch on future's end again one of these kind of time travel paradoxy sort of episodes i don't think it's a particularly interesting title except that what i think is quite interesting in it is just a few uh episodes down the page it's an episode title that gets quoted in the movie first contact and i always found that weird because these came out um i don't have the dates in front of me but they're pretty close on each other's heels i think um Future's End Voyager aired 6th of November, 1996. First Contact aired only a few weeks later. Right, exactly. It, it came out between Warlord and Ascent. And First Contact, obviously, people always talk about the tough little ship line that gets borrowed from Defiant, which was an episode that Ron Moore wrote for DS9. I've always found it really weird where she says, the Borg Queen says at the end, watch your Future's End. Just Is she talking about Future's plural, is she saying, Is she talking about one future watch the end of your future is she referencing weirdly this Voyager episode that we've just watched you know, only a few weeks before, it's it's a weird one anyway.
1: I've always thought of it just being the wipeout of the, the Federation that you know, with that flicking thing you know, there'll be no Enterprise there'll be no Picard that goes into space you know, there'll be a, a race that will by and large just stay on Earth unless another and Cochrane kind of comes along, so I, I just took that as
0: sort of, that was the the success of the, the Borg and their their mission all along. But it's a weirdly specific phrase because it's not a phrase that crops up anywhere else in Star Trek and yet it crops up twice in the space of a month. I think you have to remember as well sort of even though it kind of got released you know
1: just weeks kind of later I mean this movie had sort of been in the bag I mean I think it started filming mm. around sort of you know um, I can't remember how long ago but sort of a certain good you know year or so before sort of it had been all kind of filmed it was all ready to kind of go that was just sort of the, the release date I, I think it would be probably by and large uh i uh, am um, uh, kind of a bit of a bit of fluke but it's it is interesting kind of kind of
0: timing I, I guess that's an interesting point so maybe in fact it was the other way around someone who'd probably read the script for first contact ended up giving this name to the voyager episode which doesn't include the phrase future's end as far as i can remember at any point well both are written by bran and braga obviously i didn't realize future's end was one of his well there you go so maybe he's just borrowing from his own. Uh, movie and also kind of setting up as a little bit it's it's not exactly a trailer for the movie on the level of you know um what the next generation did for the undiscovered country uh with unification but who knows well maybe it's a deliberate little tease in there or a deliberate little reference in there then but uh maybe it's just they were desperately scraping the bottom of the barrel for one of these generic uh time travel episode titles and he was like oh i came up with a good phrase uh yeah i'll drop that one in um talking of first contact though i mean that's a movie which obviously shares a name with an episode of star trek leading to a lot of confusion uh one way or another um i guess they weren't that bothered about that when they were deciding what to name the film probably the fact that they'd used this title before you know was the least of their concerns but it was a movie that had a number of previous titles um they were considering generations two which i think would have been really boring um for a long time it was called star trek resurrection i guess because of the idea of the borg queen coming sort of you know coming back from the dead and so on but then that was dropped when alien four decided they were called uh alien resurrection so again like you know the wrath of khan was in this weird battle with the star wars movie over titles the, you know the vengeance of khan and the revenge of the jedi and all this um here we had next generation kind of going up against the alien franchise and having to lose their title um I think first contact is a great title for the film in some ways it's a statement about what is important in the film i mean it's, it's first contact is much you know I love it and i think I think it's i've you know saw it at the cinema and it was one of my best ever experiences with Star Trek and I think it's a fantastic film, but it is a very strange film it has these two plot threads that are so different in tone and kind of, um, you know, you've got this kind of gritty zombie drama on the Enterprise and then you've got this kind of weird comedy that resolves into something quite heartfelt on the planet down below. Um, And I think it's interesting that the title goes for, it's not zombies in space, it's not Borg, it's not, you know, even something like Resurrection, which sounds quite kind of, sci-fi and threatening and 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 all this uh, not threatening exactly but if it's if it's your enemy that's being resurrected it's threatening then kind of um there's something slightly scary about it in that context uh first contact is something that happens right at the very end of the film it's kind of the stakes of the film but it's slightly theoretical for for most of the film up until we actually get to witness it it's what we see at the very end and it's this very poignant beautiful moment at the end of this film of kind of, you know, A, broad comedy and B, quite tense uh kind of horror drama. um And it's a weird one. And, you know, every the other thing everyone always loves about the movie First Contact, of course, is the music. And I think the music is spectacular. But that theme, again, is a theme that doesn't seem to me the theme for the movie is not latching onto the Borg stuff. It's latching onto the first contact stuff. If you know what I mean, it's kind of saying this is a movie about something beautiful and poignant and meaningful and significant and kind of heartfelt rather than this is, if you think of like the nemesis theme, which is much more kind of action and sort of, um, sort of space action heavy somehow. Um, So I think it's an interesting one. I, you know, I think it's a perfect title for the film with or without a colon. Uh, But, it's interesting because a it references back to this next gen episode, which is, you know, very different and a very different take on the whole kind of first contact thing. But B it sort of says that on some level, what this film is about is this quite small moment at the end, which we discover has huge ramifications and basically sort of birth Star Trek. uh, Even though the majority of the action of the film is really about, you know, fighting zombies on the enterprise.
1: Yeah, I I think it's also a fantastic title. I mean, as... As you kind of sum up perfectly, the, the melody of, of this sort of, it, it almost makes it seem like the key plot really is what happens on, on the surface, even though it is the, the B plot, you know, the, the theme and score of the movie is all about that hope for the, the future. And I mean, ultimately, the the B plot is probably the most significant thing to, to happen to, to Star Trek at this point. I mean, it will go on to spawn its own franchise. I don't think any of the other sort of Star Trek episodes or movies have such an influence to go and be like the the nugget that sort of spawns something else off you know ultimately after sort of you know we get to the end of Voyager we're really in prequel world for for a long time and so on and you know it colors in a lot a significant part of the history that had only really been referenced in one original series episode so you know it's it's interesting sort of that it's, it's that one, and I think it sums up perfectly as well. That's the mission is to, you know, make sure first contact happens where, when we do the thing, like, you know, what's the date? Okay. They've, they've gone back in time to stop first contact. Like they know what they're going to do. They've got their mission and they achieve it at the end in a way that isn't sort of clear. In the other ones, you get something like insurrection where, you know, we're going to rebel. Okay. It's an act. Whereas first contact is a mission statement about Star Trek and kind of the, the movie as well.
0: Well that seems as good a note as any to end on today i think we'll we'll end our contact the on a discussion of this this key first contact uh between species um and this key moment for star trek absolutely but we'll pick up um next time going on into uh i guess further into ds9 season 5 uh with those glorious new uniforms and for the uniform or not uh, and uh, obviously Voyager Season 3 and kind of pushing forward as we go. Um, but thank you again Lee as ever for joining me. It's been great chatting some more episode titles with you. Um, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you online if they want to continue the conversation? Yeah thanks for
1: having me. You can find me on Twitter at Lee Hutchinson underscore or at Star Trek VHS or you can find me on my own podcast Filibuster which is a popular culture podcast which sometimes touches on Star Trek and the A24 project which looks at the indie films of uh, film studio
0: a24 fantastic well thank you as ever for joining me but talking about uh, film and episode titles in star trek is not the only thing we've been doing on trek fm this week although sometimes feels like it's the only thing we've been doing on primitive culture for quite a while so have a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network previously on trek.fm the line a star trek picard podcast like you're saying about jl I remember at the time reading this, Rafi calling him JL. And I remember that feeling weird to me, like you, the first time it was in the comic. And then I was like, JL, that's kind of casual. But like you said, she kind of talks to that. and But now rereading it, when I got to that, it just makes so much sense because I'm used to it now. It just seems so natural. But at the time, it felt a little odd. Earl Grey. This is that McCoy is still alive. Mm-hmm.
1: And he goes and picks up McCoy, and Scotty and McCoy have adventures mm-hmm. throughout the galaxy in their own. time. Of- no. then they go and find the Nexus, and get and get <laughs> Kirk back, and it's the three of them
0: that go. Uh, and they go to Romulus, of course, as well, to help out Spock with the reunification. Yep. And then they go to the Genesis Planet because obviously there's remnants of it after it blew up, and they find some Spock DNA and they use some Borg maturation chamber to make themselves a mini Spock. it
1: goes wrong, so Spock is only, like, six inches tall. <laughs>
0: pocket yes. Spock. And,
1: and McCoy can put him in his pocket all the time. Does like we'll McCoy love it's that? He's yeah. got
0: a wee kind of lapel pocket. Yeah, I like this, a breast pocket. We'll call him Spocket. Spock. Spock, it. It. Spock <laughs> it in McCoy's pocket. Uh, I like that. Okay. Primitive culture: a look at history and culture through Star Trek. That whole title sort of feels like the the beginnings of what Roddenberry would do with with Q, and having all those play on Q basically, oh, yeah. which I think I think exactly. had you had Mud come back, you know, more. It's almost a shame that Discovery hasn't picked up that, and and when they had Clear Harry Mudd. Mud. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. They should have done that. They resisted the temptation for the cheat I mean, as I say, (laughs) there is always a temptation with these things to go for the cheat pun. Uh, Sometimes it's the right decision to to resist. I don't know. Uh, Um, I think a cheat pun is the right call every time, Duncan, to be honest. The ready room. What does it mean to be artificial? And when you cross that barrier from being biological mm-hmm. to being artificial, but your your memories have been transferred. How much of who you are is the memory that you acquire over the course of your life? And how much of it is the biological system of your body? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe, and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, To get all the details, perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at, at AJ Black Writer. You're blended, all right.
1: Too many
0: faces searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of, hoping to find
1: a friend and a lover. I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love.